Recycles and Misfits. Coming to you from the Recycle Garage in sunny and frigid Santa Cruz, California. Hey everyone, this is Liza and I'm excited. I'm excited, you guys. This is the beginning, the, the road to 400. We're coming up on 400 episodes and I told you I'm going to book big guests for every, every night this month. And, uh, oh, we've got a good one coming on soon. And uh, many of the misfits have no idea who it is, so I can't wait. But let's get to who is in the garage today. Let's start with Miss Samsung Galaxy herself. It's Miss Emma. Hello, darling. It's so nice to be here. So my laptop has flown south for the winter. So I'm coming to you from my Samsung Galaxy J3 which is a little outdated, but um, it appears to be doing the job. Do I sound okay, darling? Yes, you do. And to everybody out there in podcast land, I love you all, darlings, and I want you all to marry me. <laughs> That's a lot of paperwork. That sounds complicated. Especially uh... the ones who own Triumphs. You're, You're still old. sorting out your citizenship, aren't you? Maybe. <laughs> All right, let's just, let's just keep it going. Uh, let's see. Let's start with, uh, oh, you heard him there. It's Charlie. Oh, shit. Yeah, I, I'm here with the, the myself and Micah in the other room. You know, I, I've got all the catchphrases tonight. <laughs> Good one, ding, Charlie. Ding, 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 bag. Much wow. Thank you very much. Let's just Did keep it say- rolling with Charlie's better half. It's Micah. Yo, yo, wiki, wiki. Hey, how's it going? Um, you're not coming through very loud, so you may want to see if you can get the uh, microphone turned up on your computer. Let's just keep going with his sitting in his... It looked like a big garage when he moved in. It doesn't anymore. It's Bagel. You look marvelous. <laughs> You've got so much, so much stuff crammed in there, Bagel. <laughs> so much stuff. Bagel's in my brain. Bagel speaking in tongues, darling. You look marvelous. In a mysterious yes, that's way. what I'm good at. <laughs> Is that a DeLorean right there? <laughs> <laughs> no, a different 80s vehicle. It's two. So let's keep yeah, it rolling. Uh, hard to recognize in all those clothes. It's Naked Jim. Hey, it's chilly. It might even be in the low 60s here in Santa I Cruz. I got the full Carhartt bear suit going. Low but 60s. I'll say I'm excited because Liza's excited. And I've learned when I, Liza gets excited, it's usually a good reason to be excited. Oh, so I'm stoked for tonight's show and the guests, too. And just your monthly reminder, it's desert season. So get out and ride. There you go. And um, let's see. Dessert season for me, darling. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Coming to us all the way from the uh, frigid north of here, it's Rick. Hi, I'm Rick. <laughs> it's Rick, man. Sometimes I'm just at a loss of words, and sometimes I'm not, you know? No. You should let your beard speak for you. Well, you nailed it better than I did, so. Yeah, it's, if, if beards could talk, this thing wouldn't shut up, I'm sure. Nice. Shut up. And then, uh, oh, who who's the last lonely little misfit sitting there in his garage? It's award-winning Mike. <laughs> oh, why does Jim look like a DJ? <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. <laughs> He's like behind the one and twos right now. Right. It's DJ <laughs> slash Alaskan diesel mechanic. Whatever you need, brother. <laughs> just move your hands left and right real quick just so we can get the motion. There we go. There we go. Quick, fast, and in a hurry. Don't worry. 
And Mike is sitting in his garage, which if you haven't checked it out yet, Rick, I don't know if you've seen it yet. Have you seen our new video? Garage is sexual. I have. The no, I have not. I saw the thing. I didn't to, poke it yet. Go to YouTube and type yeah. in the garageous zone. And it's uh, a new video uh, series that I'm doing, and it's featuring none other than Mikey Three Time and his amazing garage. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Mikey Three Times and his amazing underpants. Yeah. (laughs) Do you actually need to say that this is safe for work? Do you need that disclaimer? Uh, It's going to, that title is going to change once you start rolling and doing Define work. It's going to be like Mike's subpar garage. Now check out all these awesome really <laughs> And uh, hey, Mike, you're not coming through very loud either. Can you see if you're able to either get closer? Yeah. You may want to get um, headphones with a mic plugged in. I don't have them. <clears throat> okay. Then just uh, creep in closer or shout. <laughs> uh, you might be able to turn it up on your uh, computer as well. So um, we had a great day in the garage today. And it was the last day of the year. Yeah, I made the announcement uh, earlier this week that we will be shutting down the garage the remainder of the year. Uh, We're having more and more shutdowns, impending shutdowns in uh, California uh, due to the, it's not just COVID, but the, they're basing it upon the ICUs and their capacity. And once they get close to capacity, they're just shutting everything down. And I think it's pretty cool that um, a lot of cities north of here, like San Francisco and Berkeley, I think Santa Clara, a bunch of them uh, opted to go into a shutdown prior to hitting those numbers in the ICUs. I think it's a responsible thing to do. So I did it too. Um, even though technically we fall under uh, essential because we're helping people fix bikes, but there wasn't a whole lot of bike fixing today. It was a lot of people hanging out, just having a good time, being safe, social distancing. And um, the one thing I'm really proud of when we have these get-togethers is the array of bikes. Emma, you want to try and list off all the different types of bikes we had? Oh, good God. We had everything. I mean, if we start in terms of sheer volume, I mean, Charlie's Super Tenere is hard to beat. We had two of them. Just, yeah, we so we had two Super Tens. So that was Alex and Charlie were on the it Super It makes tens. a Super 20. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then down to the tiniest Yamaha 252 stroke from 1969, I believe. Was that a 250 um, or a 170? Oh. One of the smallest be the 175? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and then there was a little 175 on the CB Twin. We had everything. We had a, we had antique, we had modern, we had scabby, we had immaculate. We had an Indian. Um, yes, an older Indian. That was really nice. Nice. Oh yes, in the very traditional Indian red. Ah, yeah. um, great color. But yeah, it was a very, very diverse crowd. Today, the only thing missing, of course, was a scooter with the bagler on it. It was sorely missed, darling. Well, I I did see the electric electric mini bike was out doing some hot laps, I saw. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the kids were having fun on that. And also, there was um, a lot of recipients of free gear, uh, thanks to Charlie, who was really pushing it. Well, but, none, of, none of them had anything. It was ridiculous. I know. I know. I, I appreciate that you're checking, you know, seeing what people are wearing. Um, and then, They're like, oh, it's okay. I don't go that far. 
<laughs> exactly. We've yeah, got the, the gear to give away, and a lot of people got some gear today, including uh, one of the young guys got some brand new pair of uh, dirt biking boots. And then once uh, he pulled those out of the garage, uh, Matt Beals was here, and he saw them. He's like, wait, what? Those were in there? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes people buy Horror. stuff that doesn't fit or they don't use, and they give it to us. And uh, John found a brand new pair of uh, heated um, uh, gloves, the Gerbing ger- ger- gloves, in the Hot packaging hands. with all the wiring and all the bits. So um, big thanks to everyone who's ever donated gear to us. And, uh, you know, we give it away. It doesn't matter how nice it is, how new it is. We find somebody who needs it. And Can you put a sign it. over there that says gear today, gone tomorrow? <laughs> oh, that's good. Ooh, I see what you did there, Mikey. <laughs> Mikey four times now. Well, a lot of people don't <laughs> want to take the gear. Because they're like, oh, I mean, it's too nice. It's you know, what, it's yeah, they're they're like seven hundred dollar jackets in there. It's amazing. <laughs> I know. It really yeah. is. Yeah, well, I went out uh, riding with Trevor a few weeks ago, and he had literally nothing. He had some like, I the only thing he had was a helmet and a pair of gloves, and the gloves weren't even good. And we went dirt biking. And I was like, do you have anything? And he's like, oh, yeah, I got like my my work jacket and this and that. I was like, no, 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 no. And he's like, yeah, but you don't go as fast as you on the street. I was like, dude, but you crash more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We went there, and luckily, I mean, like most of the stuff from my size is not there because I'm like bigger. But uh, there's a lot of there's just so much such a range of things, and uh, you know, he got some new stuff with some old stuff, and, and literally, he went out there with like full gear, matching, you know, uh, pants and shirt. It was pretty cool. But guess what? It's time to bring in our mystery guest. So here's the introduction: a 2002 AMA hall of famer for design and engineering he's a ex motocross and road racer uh he was a mechanic while getting his degree in engineering and you'll see bikes with his name on the side joining us now it's eric buell hey eric how you doing All right, look at that garage. That looks like mine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm honored. Thank you for joining us. Hey, I'm Liza, and you got a whole bunch of the misfits here, and we are spread out all over the state and Oregon, and uh, we just love to talk about bikes. And and I think I mentioned to you, we're coming up on our 400th episode at the end of the month, so I wanted to book big guests. I wanted to find people who are as passionate as we are about motorcycles and your name came up as one of those. And I thought, you know what, this is, this would be too good. I got to go for it. So thank you very much for coming on. We've got so many questions for you, but yeah. How exciting. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. This is great. That's Hi. a good one, Liza. This yeah. is awesome. Yeah. Hi, welcome. Hey, nice <laughs> yeah. There's a whole you. bunch yeah, of wow, us this here. Is exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you may get different people asking questions, and uh, when somebody has a question, they usually will put their hand up, and that just means that they're waiting to be next in line to ask a question, just so you know. <laughs> but I wanted to start with getting to know you. I think everyone's familiar with Buell Motorcycles and EBR Racing. That's a, a household name. We've all seen the bikes, but I'd like to learn more about you, Eric, and your history, and go back to the beginning and find out how you got into riding, what was your first bike 
and and who got you into that, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So, how'd you get into it? <laughs> I was laughing. I'm so old here. You don't have a, in an hour. You can't cover it. Had to start at the beginning. Uh, uh, I, I just I grew up on a farm, and uh, so uh, for some reason, you know, uh, I rode. We had horses around probably old dying horses. It wasn't, we, we didn't have a wealthy farm, but my dad always got these like leftover horses. So I liked horses. And then uh, also being on a farm, you're working tractors and everything, just like anything powered and everything we had was old. So we had to work on it. And I don't, I don't know exactly what really got me. I, I rode a motorcycle first time when I, uh, and just uh, was a little step through Honda and I just fell in love with it. So then I had to figure out how I was going to get one myself. And uh, that started out with me getting a Leah. <laughs> I kind of two extremes. I bought a little Perilla called a Slugie 90. It was a moped with a little 90cc engine that ran about 3% of the time, but I tried to get it to run. I love those then, stories. The <laughs> bike the bike that you bit. have to like work on to get it to run. <laughs> it had to earn it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was crazy. And uh, so then I decided... Uh, uh, I guess to go all American. So I bought a basket case, Harley Davidson. Nice. So two extremes there. Well, that's literally how I started. So I think, I think I got the, the Perilla when I was like 13 and I got the, uh, I got the Harley when I was 15. <laughs> nice. So you, from growing up on the farm, you had some mechanic skills or is this what you cut your teeth on and learned how to wrench on? No, I, I, we were always working on stuff right. on the farm. So I had worked on a lot of, you know, everything we had was old. And so it needed worked on all the time, whether it was, you know, <laughs> you know, we were using 19, uh, 19, I think, uh, I think our age, early forties, late thirties tractors, you know, nice. that kind of stuff. Yeah. So. I've long had a dream to have one of those old Ford, Ford tractors, those little ones just sitting in my yard. Four. Yes. Yeah. They're so <laughs> cool. They're so cool. So uh, you then you're riding a Harley, wrenching on a Harley. Then I know at some point you started doing more types of riding and eventually got into motocross. How'd you cross over into that? Well, I, I was uh, <laughs> I was out riding, thinking I was cool on my uh, on my. This it was a it was a '52 chassis with a '57 panhead motor, so it was a hard, hard tail, um, and it had a KHK front end on it. And um, I, I lived in Western Pennsylvania, which is very twisty, windy road. So I was out riding the roads with some guy with a sprint came by me and got away from me. And I went, this is the end of this. <laughs> this I, will not want, I want a motorcycle <laughs> that goes around corners. <laughs> and I didn't own another Harley for a long, long time. But anyhow, uh, that that's kind of what, you know, switched. I just started getting involved in, in sport bikes. And I wound up getting my hands on a, what did I think what I had after that? I had I know I had a uh, 350 Kawasaki and A7. Oh yeah, which I just loved, uh, and uh, and then I wound up getting my Velocet, which Velocets kind of went through people's hands as they got frustrated trying to keep them running. So uh-huh. I would I bought it when it wasn't working, got it running, struggled with it, and managed to sell it while it was running, and then I'd buy it back not running again. So I owned that for <laughs> off and on for years. <laughs> Yeah, that's Vela said ownership. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
that was a lovely motorcycle when it ran, though. It was very fun. It really went around corners amazingly well. Do you wish you had it now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think over really time we, we forget what a pain in the ass certain bikes are, and we just wish we <laughs> yeah. had them still. Yeah. And probably I wouldn't have the patience anymore to work on it. You know, when you're a kid, you'll do anything to get it running so you can ride. Yeah. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I just wanted to. I just wanted to ask. It, it's so funny. His story. His story sounds like everyone's story where they <laughs> get a bike. Not everyone, but like where they get a bike, and it's like everybody says this like passion for riding, and like I feel like the passion for riding is like what you're actually dreaming of doing because most of the time you're spending there working on your bike trying to get <laughs> to ride. So like the passion for riding, is really like the future, or like the, the future tense, not the current tense, you know. But uh, I said, you know what I mean? Because this is true. Really is. You said three percent on the thing, and it's like you know you're sitting there working on the bike all the time. Uh, my question is the uh, the um was your Harley like? Was it? Did you buy that just because that's what everyone else was riding at the time? And it, and uh, and did you, what? What kind of like performance stuff did you do? Because I got hardtail, and if you take any turns on that thing, the whole thing goes like this. You know, <laughs> really trying to go for it. So I mean, like, you know, I was. I was really not into, you know, motorcycles at the time. I was into, I could make something work and then I could ride it. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing. And I, I kind of had two experiences. One one was the, you know, the, uh, I can't remember why, but somehow the front brake didn't work uh, at one point in time. And I was out riding it anyhow. And this, this happened right before the guy beat me on the sprint. But anyhow, somebody, uh, some lady was in front of me in a station wagon. And I think she was about, a half a mile ahead of me and she stopped and I still hit a rear bumper, you know, <laughs> so my first lesson, right. rear brake does absolutely nothing. Mechanical There's drums. a skid yeah. mark about, a, you know, a quarter of a mile long and they hit her bumper. <laughs> but, my spot you know, yeah. I, I was just riding, you know, cause I thought it was just cool, you know? And then I, you know, as you start wanting to ride faster and run to ride better then you start going hmm what works what doesn't work but i never really made the harley work i happily sold it to somebody else but tell the truth did it get you the girls (laughs) (laughs) no i mean i show up on this cool bike but i was covered with grease and dirt i thought it was cool but they didn't yeah an hour late wrong girls man (laughs) Nice. And then, so you started moving through the bikes and I know you did some motocross for a while and then you got into road racing. Did you always have that competitive spirit in you? Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting, I guess nothing brought it out of me the way motorcycles did. So, you know, I, I just didn't realize how competitive it was until I started, you know, racing. You know, I think the first race I ever did was I had a 90cc Suzuki that I had put a, uh, you know, whatever the hop up kit they sold at that time was an expansion chamber, probably nothing else. And uh, I took it to a race and it got all muddy and I had trials tires on it. And I probably fell, you know, 150 times during the race, but I kept getting up and going again. I think that's probably when I realized this is, I really want to do this. (laughs) I had the same feeling at AMA vintage days, crashing in the mud all day and say, I could do this every day. (laughs) That was his cool hand Luke moment. <laughs> that was so much fun. Keep getting up. <laughs> so, so tell the truth. How good were you at racing? I was good at, at, at road racing. Um, 
I always rode motocross a lot as practicing, but I quit motocrossing because I really broke my leg extremely mm. badly, almost lost it. And I, I couldn't ride motocross for a while. Mm. So I started road racing because I bought a bike. I was mechanicing on for, my guy, for a guy. I bought it from him because he wanted to quit. And I started road racing, you know, because I couldn't, uh, I could barely get on a, you know, uh, a road race bike, right. just fold my leg up and put it on a foot peg. But, you know, I couldn't possibly ride a motocross bike. Um, and, uh, but I wound up being pretty good road racing. I, I think I could have been really good, but I was, you know, you know, in the top 10 nice. in uh, Formula One racing and in uh, fastest qualifying rookie in my rookie year at Daytona, uh, qualified. Uh, and that was when they used to have yeah, 120 guys would show up for the race and 80 would qualify, 40 would go home. And that I'm talking about, there were Europeans. So like Patrick Pons was in the race with me and Sato Asami from Japan and uh, gosh, uh, Corky Ballington from just all these guys from, you know, international people would come over back oh then. Uh, Johnny God, that's a name I haven't heard in 30 years. <laughs> this is Emma. Yeah. You just, I wanted to say when I, when I was kind of researching you a little bit, a lot of names from my past came up and you just dropped another one. Cause I haven't heard anybody even say Cork Ballington for 30 years. Um, and what a competitive guy. Um, South African, I believe. I think. Yes, correct. South African, and he really made his name on the on the on the Kawasaki two fifties, certainly yes. in England on the on yes. the four and a half twins. But God, yeah. I haven't heard that name in thirty years. <laughs> well, yeah, and Eric. I mean, obviously, Eric's plenty fast. You know, just look at his history. But those were the the dangerous fast bikes too. You guys were racing back then. I mean, it was no joke. The 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 bikes you guys raced then. Well, you know, we didn't think about it. You know, first of all, you're young, and of course, the bikes weren't that much. You know, weren't better, and it, you know, it's what you had to ride to to race. So I, I was really, you know, I had a, I, I wound up going through the 250s and getting up and getting a super, riding a Ducati 900 SS and superbike, nice. and then a TZ 750 in Formula One, which was kind of the that was the only bike to yeah. ride in Formula well, One. And uh, can I can I jump in here? Um, because as I said, a lot of names came up from my past when I was researching. And I thought, I'd forgotten about those two. And so you've kind of brought us up to the TZ750. And I want to talk briefly, and I'll make it brief, about maybe one of the almost more frustrating periods in your life. Um, <laughs> can we talk about Barry and Marilyn Hart and the Barton? Very <laughs> hard. You There's know I was going to go there. But, well, yeah. I was messing about with Spondons back then. And, of course, mm. Spartans, basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. It carries engine in a Spondon, but it was a space frame thing. And it was it was a wonderful creation, but not entirely well executed. So, um, No, no, that was pretty horribly executed, actually. So, <laughs> <laughs> that was quite polite. <laughs> I was, honestly. And, uh, you know, which was nothing against you know, the dream and the task that he took on, which was insane, uh, truly, you know, to build a, you know, well, a motorcycle. Would you, would you, I mean, would you kind of condense this basically from stealing an RG500 engine and saying, how can we make this better? So if you could condense this for people so they can understand, because it's like something out of a, 
Spy novels. <laughs> You're one of the only people who knows the story. But I heard the same thing, so it must be correct that, that Barry actually stole an engine and, and yes, copied it. But it, it was basically um, the, the Barton was Barry loved Suzuki's. And, and as you know, he made three cylinder, he took the three cylinder bikes and very loosely based. Yeah. Right. So but he took the, the 500 bikes. twin first, right? Yes. And he made water cooled cylinders for those. And he would convert the Suzuki twin. So then he got his hands on the RG500s, which were not the production street ones or the ones that were readily available. They were only GP bikes. And somehow, and I, I think Barry Sheen might have been the one who kind of let it get stolen. But they got <laughs> the motor and then copied it and then um, decided to make a 750 version of it and as well as a 500. So it was a mishmash of things, but had a lot of RG500 Mark I parts in it and uh, like all the transmission shifting mechanism. When he made his own gears and then he mowed his own crankshafts and all those sorts of things. But it was very, um, very closely based on that. Um, and then it used, uh, you know, 2Z, TC750 size pistons for the 750 version. Um, and um, it, was a, it, was a, it was a crazy thing. Um, and, it, you know, they were. But how did yeah. you get involved in this? Okay, the, way in this I, the way I got involved was I, I was racing the TC750 in Ducati. And uh, while I was in night, at school at, at the university, when I graduated, I went to work for Harley. So I brought my bikes with me. And uh, but when I started, uh, so in 78, I raced quite a few of the races, but I graduated in 79. So I went to work for Harley and I had no vacation. So I didn't race at all in 79. So the bikes kind of sat in my garage. And then in 80, I finally started to get a little bit of money. And I went to one or, or vacation time and I went to like one or two races. Um, and, um, uh, but by then Harley was starting to get in really big trouble. And, uh, I just felt really guilty racing other brands. And that was how the madness all started. I, I was like, I, I can't be racing a Yamaha, you know, and a Ducati when I, when I work for Harley. Conflict is strong. And so I wound up, uh, getting a Barton from him, uh, uh, to race because obviously they weren't a competitor of anybody um, being a tiny little company. And they have folded within a month or something after me buying the thing, which it was not a good motorcycle. It was a great concept, but it just had all kinds of right. issues. Um, and I, it's not worth the time of the litany, but, but uh, it's very understandable considering what all they were trying to do. Um, but, you know, the materials weren't right. The fits weren't right all kinds of issues so i had to do a whole lot of engineering and fight with it for years and then i wound up uh they were got bought by armstrong and armstrong wanted to junk all the stuff from that square four so i wound up buying what was left of it for a song and then kind of redoing it and uh and, you know and, making it pretty functional actually the motor was getting pretty good and i had to build a new chassis because the chassis was awful i'm almost unrideable i don't know how anybody wrote it and and just so people know the the Barton we're talking about this is a a a square four two stroke and like I didn't even know that there was another square four besides the aerial so um, and it's a seven fifty cc it sounds amazing but uh, just like the aerial are there the same amount of problems with like overheating on the rear cylinder stuff like that. Well, you know, no, it's a very different situation, and I know the aerials pretty well because I knew a guy who owned one and helped it work on it. Um, it it just was a very highly stressed racing motor that 
<laughs> they didn't have quite the right materials. I mean, they were, you know, casting pieces for it by pouring stuff in the sand, you know, and in the ground and the dirt, you know, I, it was just crazy. Um, just an, an, a huge heart endeavor. Uh, but it, when I got it working and got it running, it was violently fast. It was tremendously powerful, much more powerful than a TC-750, really, really fast. But it, you know, two issues where it was unreliable. And the second thing, it had a power band like a light switch. Uh, but you're talking about things being bad to ride. TZ750 was a little pussycat compared to this thing. Yeah. Wow. It was terrifying. To ride. Mm, crazy. Uh, I actually, I'm, if I was a bike of all bikes I've ever owned that I'd love to have back, I'd love to have my TZ750 back. I just loved that motorcycle. I just loved, I loved riding it. It was so fun. Um, did not have a handling problem at all. Problem with them was they just had a lot of horsepower. Um, and, and the, you know, so they, they, were, they were hard work to ride because they had enough power that they would just light the tires and just get out of control. Um, but it, it came on pretty mellow. It's just to ride fast. You, you know, it was scary. That's all. The Ducati um, actually did not handle nearly as well as the Yamaha, but it had this big forgiving engine with a huge amount of flywheel that was just, you know, the power band was so smooth and, you know, would never get you in trouble. But the, the Yamaha was just a, and it was a sweet motorcycle. And and we kind of jumped ahead going to the Barton because the other engine that I wanted to talk about when you went to work for for Harley, you were working on the the Nova. So yeah, a lot no, of people may cool not guy. be familiar with Porsche. This. Yeah. So yeah. um, do Porsche. you guys remember there was a documentary years ago? I remember seeing about this whole development. Um, Harley working working with Porsche, like what? That sounds crazy. So I would love to hear more about um, working on that project. I mean, was this really the first time that Harley was coming to like the modern age, you know, and performance? Yeah, it was a, it was a very interesting project. And uh, I, I did not really, I did some testing on it mm-hmm. and handling testing, that kind of stuff. Bless you. Uh, but you. I did not, <laughs> but I, I wasn't really involved in the engineering of it. Um, uh, it was, it, it was, it was a crazy thing. It was kind of a design by Kim. It started off, but Harley was in such a transition at that time. You know, it started off with AMF mm-hmm. funding it. And, um, the guy who was running it, um, uh, came from, uh, actually had been with the UOP shadow team, a British guy. And, uh, and, and so he was trying, and that combined with Porsche, they were trying to do innovative things. But then on the other hand, there was the side of Harley saying, no, 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 it needs to be a Harley. Oh, no, no, don't do that. and Don't do this and don't do that. So it wound up being committed for a long time. And it was really killed for very good reason, which was Harley was out of money. And mm-hmm. Von Beals, who took over Harley, was the most brilliant guy from a business standpoint um, uh, that I've ever known. And um, he realized that he had way more things to fix than making a V4 and that the Porsche image probably would hurt Harley at that time. And so, uh, you know, he killed it. There were a lot of people distressed over it, but I had tested it and it had been pretty badly compromised. It was heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very overweight uh, by the time they were done with it. Um, and uh, a lot of that was, shouldn't have happened, but, you know, but it did, it could have been a much lighter motorcycle. It could have been better. But again, too much confusion and too much, uh, 
too many committees on it. So it was probably a good thing. It was actually going to be a twin and a four and a six. Yes. So that, uh, yeah, this, yeah. When I wow. heard, learned about that, V6 sounds crazy. <laughs> um, and the, the thing that's interesting, too, I mean, so much work was put into developing this V4, which seemed to have a lot of potential. And then it all just kind of fell apart. But can anyone else here name uh, a company that did put a V4 into a bike? Emma? Oh, God. V4, there's tons of them. The, Honda. 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 The Magna, yeah. Yeah. right? Honda, yeah. Yeah. That, so well, there's the, Ma- there's, there's the Magma and the Sabre, which was <laughs> and the, the Sabre, like, exactly. European. Sabre. Sabre, darling. So they basically came in and swooped up the, the whole concept and uh, ran with it. But you said, well, no, just they... hang on there. Um, and I, I, I hope that Eric's not going to uh, uh, say, no, this is completely wrong, because Honda nearly shot themselves in the foot with that V4, because the very early ones were incredibly troublesome. They couldn't get the oiling right at the top end, and they used to eat their top ends. It, it, it really very nearly bankrupted them. The early V4s, the really, really early ones, the 82s and 83s, were appalling bites. Yes, I had one. <laughs> yeah, and did it eat its scams? It was so awful. I actually, I actually, I was working for Harley at the time, but I was, I had to get something, a motorcycle that was more techy. So I bought one of those, the very first uh, Sabres. And oh, uh, they, God did have this, they did have the Sabre in the U.S. briefly, and then mm-hmm. it was replaced by the Magnet. But it was so bad, I sent them a letter. I was just horrified. And, uh, the, handling expect- was, the handling was awful, too. Oh, they handled yes. terribly. It was high and awkward and just... And it was wiggly, just, a, just wobbly. Oh, it was awful. Yeah, it went, thank you. And see, thank and you. actually, that segues well. I wanted to talk about... The other thing that you accomplished with your time at Harley Davidson, because you brought something to the table that they really hadn't been, uh, hadn't accomplished much, and that was the chassis and the handling, and that you were able to do that. Can you talk a bit about um, what you did with that, with the the FXR, and how you made that a better bike? Yeah, that was actually a very fun project uh, because um, I, you know, uh, we really needed it. And also the company was small and shrinking. And so they were letting people go. And um, so we kept getting more and more responsibility. So I kind of got handled, handed the deal of testing this thing and trying to make it work. Um, FLT was just about going into production. The FXR was behind it. And we were testing both of them. And uh, the original FXR was just a really, really bad handling motorcycle. Um, and we had a, a bunch of testing we used to do it. And, and, and I wound up being back then they had, you know, they had union and the union riders were supposed to ride the bike and the X were supposed to do it. You know, engineers were supposed to do this and that, but I would go out and ride. And so all the, the, the riders knew that I was a better rider than anybody there. So I would say, just let me ride it. I want to ride the bike because I can push it harder. And I wound up putting a ton of instrumentation over it, uh, LVDTs on both sides of the front and rear suspension. So I could see whether the forks twisted left and right. So because, you know, one side versus the other, I could measure if the fork wow. was deflecting at the axle. And then on the same thing on the back, so I could see if the swing arm was. And then I had one mounted sideways with a, tra- a little rail. So as the swing arm went up and down, I, I could 
not only measure twist, but I could measure lateral deflection. And then we'd experiment putting pieces in and seeing which one of those had the most effect and help the handling the best. You know, just if we were down at the shop, just welding out pieces of steel and shoving <laughs> them in and packing them on and just because it here. Yeah. yeah. It was it was actually very fun. And then there was a guy, you know, there was we had an, a really early FEA, and there was a guy up in uh, Milwaukee who was working on FEA stuff and kind of matching up. We, we were testing the results with what FEA would say. Um, uh, you know, um, uh, it was very early FEA, very, very math comprehensive, but it, he did have computer help with it. So between those two, we turned it from absolutely the worst handling bike that Harley would have ever put out into by far the best. Yes. And uh, that was that was really fun because uh, and it was still big and heavy and underpowered, but it was very um, trustworthy. You know, there is so you can ride it right to the limit and not be scared. There's still a cult sect following. I mean, you know it. I'm sure, Eric. Um, I, I work in an independent or an Indian dealership that also works on V twins up here in Auburn, California. And yeah. I can tell you, working in the service department doing test rides, it was an absolute damn blast having FXRs come through all the time. <laughs> you know, yeah, totally. And it, it'd be an FXRP that's falling apart. They got decommissioned. It looks like a rat ate half the harness. <laughs> but when it rolled down the road, it was an FXR. Like we would always laugh about it. Like it, that, that chassis worked, you know, and it's great to be able to actually ride that stuff, man. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, my question to you, Eric, is what was the primary factor for the thing handling like a three-legged horse? Or was it a lot of little things or did you find one thing really tighten that bike up? Well, you know, it was a lot of little things, you know, and inherently it wasn't a great layout for a chassis design. You know, it had a lot right. of brake angle, it had flimsy forks, you know, it has the typical classic, you know, just two down tube frame and, and of course, rubber mounts um, with a couple of tie bars that try to tie it together. But, you know, fundamentally, it was flexing and uh, very bad, very <laughs> extreme lack of proportional rigidity. And, and right. we fixed that uh, by stiffening the swing arm. Um, and by doing massive stiffening of the frame up in the front so that we could actually get some advantage out of the tie bar that was down at the front lower section. It was basically, you know, the, the steering head just would move side to side. And what we wound up doing was actually putting tubes inside of tubes. If you ever cut open an FXR frame, um, there's two tubes inside those down tubes. Um, there's a second tube put inside and then uh, welded with the uh, spots through it. Uh, so it's massively heavy. The other thing I always thought might have helped was we added so much weight on the front of the bike that it helped the weight bias a little bit. But anyhow, <laughs> you know, it doesn't seem like the right thing to do from a racing standpoint, but it was so weak that adding, you know, the stiffness there, even though it added weight, made a big difference in the handling. And then we did some neat stuff with the shock absorbers because we found where to put a knee, you know, changing the damping depending on the velocity because we found there were certain, uh, certain frequencies and, and motions that would set it off. So we did things to damp that out. Awesome. Um, Interesting yeah. stuff. Yeah, I, I like how you take your, your racing lineage to Harley-Davidson, which, I mean, I never really think of those as like racing performance bikes, but the things that you can do to it to, to improve them and make them more 
a higher performance. It's really cool how you could put those, you know, put that to, to work on a, on a bike like that. But you were still had one foot in racing this whole time, didn't you? Uh, yes. And, 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 and so I left Harley mm-hmm. to pursue the race, uh, you know, project, um, and then hopefully build sport bikes after that. It kind of happened in a way that, you know, that's what wound up happening. It may be all happen, but um, it was, uh, uh, you know, I had liked what I was doing with the, with the, you know, with the development of the chassis and stuff, but we kind of hit a dead end, you know, the Nova was killed and a lot of things that, and Von Beals was doing all the right stuff that, that needed to be done with the company. He focused them on, on, on two things that the product had to have extremely high quality screw changing it i mean making any kind of radical change just fix all the basics things that were wrong because you know the old the old shovel head engine that preceded the evo was just a horrible motor you know it is i know there are harley lovers out there going to hate me for saying it's <laughs> true but it really was an awful motor i remember when i went there that thing first job i had down there was was work was uh, as a test engineer a junior test engineer and uh my first job was uh they're te- tracking the u- oil usage of their test fleet. And they were like, just getting 160 miles to a quart. Um, oh, you know. <laughs> oh, man. I-, I had a Suzuki GT750, which was my street bike. So I really like it. It's heavy and everything. but It was very nice. I like that bike. It always was fun to beat people with it, too, because they didn't have you. So if you were out riding with them, you could humiliate them. But anyhow, it was, it, I had the, you know, the, the, the oil injection system set up on that and tweaked. So I was getting a thousand miles to a quart out of a two stroke. And these things were getting 160, 240, you know, a really strong one might get close to 500 miles to a quart, you know, on these Harleys. And you're like, Oh my God, you know? Um, wow. So that was a thing he said, you know, this has to be fixed. And meanwhile, you know, he had come from AMF's whole deal was let's just build more of them and sell them as fast as we could, which was a terrible idea because they weren't ready, you know? And so the more they sold, the more people they had, they were upset. And then the second thing he wanted to do was change the ownership experience and make the dealers um, less of the old hardcore badass Harley guys and more responsive. And that's why he started Hog, the whole thing to listen to the customer, not don't listen to your dealer, you know, and and don't listen to the magazines. That's what he said. Listen to the customers, <laughs> and um, that he you know he drove Harley to that. But anyhow, I remember I went in and met with him. When I left, I had an exit interview and he liked me. I had had a bunch of promotions in the three and a half years I was there. Um, and I basically said, you know, I don't get this whole cruiser thing. <laughs> I'm a sport <laughs> my guy. And, you know, your sales are dropping and I don't think there's any hope in this business. So I'm going to go racing. And uh, which is the funny story when we, we, we joined back up again. Related to that. But, you know, uh, that was it. I decided I, I was going to try to go build, you know, build a brand out of racing and then build sport bikes, which was, you know, just more stupid than Barry Hart's craziness with <laughs> starting to build a, you know, a 500 GP bike, 750 GP bike, you know, in Wales in the basement of the church, but it was pretty similar. Um, and uh, so that's what I went off to do. Um, and that's what led to getting the Barton. And I had already bought a yeah. Barton while I was yeah. working at Harley. And I decided I was going to make my own bike out of it because they were out of business. So build my own frame, redo the engine, all that stuff. And uh, anyhow, that's when I split and left and, you know, 
and not too much later, I finally wound up building a sport bike using a Harley motor. And, but and it, So here, here's, a little, here's a little trivia for y'all. So the first bike was called the RW750. Can anyone guess what RW stood for? Really weird. Warrior. <laughs> not yes. you, Eric. You're not supposed to guess. <laughs> Road warrior. Don't guess. <laughs> really wild. <laughs> Road warrior. I love that. So, yeah. And, and the thing I like, too, is um, you were making bikes to sell to, to racers and I think you were offering bikes about half of for half the price of what uh, race bikes were going for. Does that sound about right? Well, it was a competitive price. You know, one of the reasons that I left to do this was I, there was a gap when they had that when Yamaha was selling the TC seven fifties. It was an unbelievable deal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you bought a new one for like sixty five hundred bucks. Um, you know, you could buy a used one for four thousand dollars one that was like a year old. And this is a Formula One bike. I mean, they were the, the dominant bike. You could win in AMA, <laughs> unless Kenny was there. Yeah. But you could win in AMA <laughs> on a TZ750, um, you know, that you bought. Uh, and they built 200 a year for the U.S. because that was the rules in AMA. Is you, know, you had to make 200. So they brought 200 of them in a year. Um, and so they were very affordable and they were great. Well, that was, you know, as I was coming into my racing career. And then, of course, I... Harley came along and I was kind of stalled for a while. And then I bought my own thing. Well, what wound up happening is Yamaha AMA changed the rules so they didn't have to make so many. And all of a sudden the NS, the new the Honda came in, whatever it was, NSR, yeah. whatever, the three cylinder. And instead of being $6,000, they were like $20,000 or 25, you know, and a spare motor was 15, you know, and the parts were crazy expensive. And then Yamaha raised their prices. And then all of a sudden, it was like privateers are screwed. Now, I didn't know that Bill France and France family were talking the AMA into killing Formula One. Right. So I thought, you know, you know, privateers need a bike. I think I can do this. This bike's faster than Yamaha. If I could just get the money to produce them, you know, and make them reliable, I think I could get there. You know, then here's my chance. The bike is wildly fast. Um, you know, made in America, I can build my brand, you know, with that while I figure out what my street engine is going to be, because it's not going to be a two stroke yeah. <laughs> four cylinder, you know, version of this thing. Um, but that's kind of how that all, um, you know, came to be. Are there still any in of these, the Bart- are, are there still so, yeah. any Barton powered Buells around? Um, there, um, there's one down at, there were only, uh, there were only two mm. um, ever built. Um, and, uh, one is in the hands of a guy up in Northern Wisconsin, um, uh, who bought basically my collection. Um, they're associated with a Harley dealer up there, I think. So there aren't any, uh, any museums? Uh, there's one down in Barber's museum. George Barber has the best collection of mule stuff ever. It really does. Nice plug. Thanks God for him for doing that. Cause as I can say, I couldn't keep the collection there. I knew I was never gonna have any money. (laughs) <laughs> to build a museum or anything. And I needed money to try to get some, put money into fuel to get that started. So I sold the collection I have, which had some really cool stuff in it. Nice. Uh, fun stuff that 
that would <clears throat> change the Russian history that's written about some products. But anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> well, so out with the Barton engine, but you're still in racing. So then you turn to your old friends at Harley Davidson. And uh, you were able to pick up some some old motors from them and and keep the racing going, correct? Yeah, I basically um, um, wound up doing a, a chassis for them, uh, which became Lucifer's Hammer too. So they, I had already done the first. Uh, you know, what I did was, yeah, I, what I wound up doing was uh, I, I had to find a solution because the AMA banned my bike. Right. That uh, they eliminated Formula One class. So I, I got offered, you know, come back, back to work at Harley and I'm like, I'm not going to do it. So what I did do instead was I had a friend who was a dealer who said, you know, build a bike with Harley motor in it. And I, I wound up, I built a prototype for a show bike um, for uh, Vetter at that time. Ah, he's a good um, friend of ours. Yep. Craig mm-hmm. had that Vetter helmets and Vetter, whatever it was, you know, yep. and, and somehow was associated with Bell I'm not sure what all was going on, but I had this concept for a bike and they said, you know, well, you know, we'd like a show bike uh, that would be a sport bike of the future. Uh, You know, an American sport bike of the future that will help with our brand. So they gave me 10 grand to to deliver this thing. And I built the first R1000 with that money. Um, uh, And which I had wanted to do anyhow. And at the same time, I was building a chassis for Harley to race in the GP class to put an XR1000 motor. So I built this bike and it was on the show circuit with better on that wintertime show circuit that we used to run. Um, Okay. Now, wait a minute. See, I've always often wondered. So this is the bike that had the, the biggest fairing and had the front wheel almost completely covered. And I look at that and I go, it looks like something Craig would be involved in. Right. So did... it's funny. It's he was not involved in the design of yeah. it at all. Um, I'm trying to remember the guy. I think Craig had already sold the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, I feel bad. I can't remember the guy's name who was running it at that time. It's a guy who's been around in the motorcycle industry for a long time. And I'm just, I'm just old. So we're not going to remember that. Um, anyhow, he contracted me to do this thing. So we built it. It was painted blue with a big white stripe down the side of it. And it was, you know, it had better, giant better letters down the side. And with, we did the, all the body work around it for a bunch of reasons. One is I, it was kind of based off the RW750. So very aerodynamic, number one. Uh, number two, it looked very high tech. Um, it had a Harley motor, but you couldn't see it. So mm-hmm. we could say it was American, but you could also think that it was very modern or an engine of the future, which the Harley engine of the old XR1000 wasn't. And then I also, uh, for aerodynamics, I wanted to close the front wheel. But the other thing I was trying to do with wrapping the fender around the front wheel was to protect the front wheel from being, um, if you bump something with the front end of the bike and you have the front wheel on it, <laughs> like I did to Randy Mabola in 79 and qualifying uh, practice Formula One bike at Daytona, and I got pitched over the handlebars oh. at like 100. 180 miles an hour. But anyhow, run the front tire into something is a really bad thing on a bike. You know? so, so basically a, part a bumper bike is what you made. Yeah. I just <laughs> thought that would, um, I had personal experience that it would be a really good idea to have that. But, you know, so a lot of things. And it, so it was very striking looking at the time, wild looking, and it, you know, it served their purpose well. And then I had a dealer friend, a Harley dealer friend of mine saying, hey, you know, you built a bunch of those for the street. I think we could sell some to these dealers because we're now making money. But a lot of us, there's a number of us who still like sport bikes and, you know, Harley's not doing anything like that. So maybe they'd want to buy some. 
friend of mine named Devin Batley was a dealer out of Maryland. And um, so that's what I wound up doing. I, I negotiated a deal to get, uh, and that's another long story. But anyway, I Is this the famous story where you got on the cruise ship? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with with all the Harley, Harley dealers and, and pitched it to them? I heard yeah, you were yeah, smuggled friend, aboard, like stowawayed <laughs> into the yeah, show. Yeah, so that's the truth. Yeah, right in, a, in a sea chest, I think. <laughs> yeah, my buddy Devin snuck me on board because he's the whole reason for the success of Buell. I think it's his girlfriend broke up with him, so he didn't have anybody to go with him. So he's like, hey, you want to go along and talk to some dealers? So I wound up walking through the hallways with these little printed, you know, things that I had gotten at whatever little print shop, hideous looking little brochure saying, Hey, I'll build you one of these. If you give me money up front. Um, and, um, I wound up getting called in. I think we were in Puerto Rico. We had pulled over in Puerto Rico or something at the time. And Von Beals, I got a note that Von Beals wants me to meet with him in a, you know, somewhere. And he goes, well, I hear you're trying to sell bikes on my cruise ship. And I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> he goes, well, my, some of my dealers like it. So, uh, you think you want to buy some engines for it? I'm like, God, yes. <laughs> so he said, well, let me talk to, let, let to talk to Jeff Bluestein, who I had worked for when Jeff was the VP of engineering. So we'd set up a deal to buy the leftover, the last, you know, the engines they had in the warehouse. Cause there's actually 83 engines, XR 1000 engines. And this was 87. So they were left over. I'll show you one of my favorite bikes. Uh, that's a whole other story <laughs> yeah the vr 1000 oh. uh-huh. yeah my project <laughs> oh yeah yeah that's the truth you on want to story. tell us about it oh god we probably have enough time but anyhow <laughs> uh okay okay way back when i was just launching so it was 87 spring of 87 i was just launching the bikes and i got a call you know i had built that <clears throat> motor that had become Lucifer Sander too. Mm-hmm. And Harley called me down to a meeting um, to talk about going road racing. We went to this meeting and uh, Mark Tuttle was there and a couple other people. I was head of racing at that time. <sighs> Anyhow. Um, and um, they were talking about this saying, okay, you know, your bike burnt, but we need to have more power. You know, we can go super bike racing. And, uh, you know, what we think we're going to do is take the XR750 and pump it up to a thousand cc, and we'll put a five-speed in it. Make it all exciting. Um, and I said, guys, the rules are fifty motorcycles. And I said, you need to build a batch of fifty bikes. Do you want to be competitive? And they're like, yes. I said, it's, it would be hopeless to try to make an air-cooled bike run with us. I said, however, you know, back then the seven fifty, so it was a seven fifty-four cylinder, a thousand cc twin. Ducati was still running a 750 Pata or somewhere like that. And even this is 87, man. Look and see what they had back then. And I said, let's build a thousand cc water cool between 50 of them. That's that's all we need to do. And I think it'll be competitive. So then I went back and I did a bunch of design work and I, I called up the guys that I knew at Cosworth and I said, okay, Cosworth BDG is a two liter four cylinder. So you know, four or 500 cc cylinders, right? Um, Cosworth BDGs were making 300 horsepower at that time, naturally aspirated. So I talked to them and I said, okay, you know, what, what does it take? How are you making such great power? And they said, well, there's a couple of keys to it. You know, the motor's pretty well developed. They said, one of the huge things is you need a gigantic air box. If you're not going to have any kind of supercharging, you need a huge still air box. So when the engine takes the gulp of air, 
it, you know, it, it, you know, um, it has plenty of still air to pull from. Um, and so I went back and I laid out an engine with a BDG bore and stroke um, cylinder head, um, tilted the crankshaft so that the crank was low and the output shaft for the transmission was high and the clutch was in the middle. And the reason was I wanted to get the weight of the crank low and as far forward as possible. And I wanted the output sprocket up higher so I could have some anti-squat in the chassis. Uh, so that was the first engine company that I proposed. And that 13 degree split is, is even in the, in the V rod, but anyhow, so that carried over. But, um, uh, and then what I said, laid out, I said, I need a big air box. And that's, you know, they made, the numbers they gave me, I ran the numbers. The answer is I need, you know, 24 liters of air or 25 liters of air uh, for a 500 cc cylinder. They said, you know, like five times the volume. And I'm thinking going, okay, that's the size of the gas tank of an RW750 because the old AMA rules were 26 liters or 24 liters, something in that range. I'm like, what the hell? You know, I'm going to have an airbox that size. I need the whole gas tank to be an airbox. So where am I going to put the gas? And I'm like, oh, Cobus. Cobus has these big beam frame, 250, that's really working. What, if I laid out a frame, I wonder how much gas could go in it. So that's the original BR-1000. It's a fuel in the frame, split radiators, with the engine shoved forward, 60-degree V-twin, and Porsche was started, you know, was going to work on the engine. Um, they had some discussion about but then they changed their minds, partly because they were poor and they wanted to do it in America. So they wound up starting that project, and the guy inside there, and they Mark Miller, started working on the motor, turning it into a real motor, not just the layout like I had. And then they wound up jobbing work off to uh, Rauch over in, in uh, Michigan, mm -hmm. which is where Steve Scheibe wound up coming from. He was a cylinder guy there. But, you know, that was what the bike was supposed to be. And the guy up in northern Wisconsin has that bike. Nice. And the original BR motor, which fits that bike, and it doesn't look like the ones they ever raced with. The original BR motor uh, was the one with, you know, for my bike. Uh, it has mounts on it for uh, rubber mounting with three tie bars because I was going to do that with the chassis rather than put a balancer in it, not have the power losses. Um, but it, it's great that you brought up the, wow. the gas in the frame because you carried that over. Uh, yeah. It's, it's in some of your, your bikes. Yeah. Um, and I think oil, um, you know, yeah. Oil in the, was it oil in the frame in the swing arm? Was it? Yeah. I wound up putting oil in the swing arm when yeah. it came out with the, uh, with the, XB. Uh, the XB was kind of, we were working on it. So set aside. So I lost mm -hmm. 10 years on that project while they went off and did the, you know, the VR, which some of the issues with the VR, it never made the power that it should have because mm -hmm. it didn't have a big enough air box. Mm -hmm. And it was too long because they didn't split the radiators to get the CG for it. So it wasn't enough weight on the front wheel and the bike was too long. And the proof of the pudding is when I finally built <laughs> the 1190, Yes. RS. That is the VR that would have been out in 1990 had they not screwed it up. And we would have wiped out Ducati. Ducati would never have had any horses because we would have beaten it. If they just have listened to you, Eric. Damn right. Sorry. That is one where you go, that was so freaking stupid. But, you know, there's committees in politics, which is the horror story of. Well, and I have to so say, just looking at your career, I know that there's just been bumps in the road where your genius is, is 
prevented or or stopped from budgets or rules or like it's like you just kind of the hits keep coming but you just keep coming back and uh i mean we saw this with your you know you you just kept coming and that's when you know the buell bikes came out and there was an evolution of those you could see happening and they were becoming um i mean you really had everything from the the blast which i still know people picking those up as a a beginner bike you know yeah that's fine um, which yeah. it was intended to be, and the then standard for the course, and then you yeah. get some of the bikes. Uh, is it the XB? This is a high end performance machine that is still very collectible. Yeah. Well, the whole XB series wound up being really good bikes, although they were really supposed to be. You know, we started on the second project, which was uh, the Revolution project, mm-hmm. uh, with 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 um, with Porsche. And that was going to be the first Buell. So when <clears throat> Bon Beals came 10 years after I had started Buell, Bon Beals, Harley came and said, do you want to sell? You know, we're interested in buying your business. And it's really hard to get funding for something like a motorcycle business. So I had been, you know, chugging along for 10 years, but just, you know, barely keeping my head above water, still small. And, so, okay. you know, they first they approached me and said, you know, I think it was said, you know, well, we'd like to buy you back. You know, we'd like to have your engineering skills. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that because, you know, you know, you know, I want to do so much more. Um, And then Vaughn Beals Beals put me in and he goes, you know, well, I remember when we had that exit meeting and you said you didn't think this cruiser thing was going to go anywhere. What do you think now? And I go, okay. Because, you know, he says that. He said, you know, I did was right. He said, but I want to tell you this. The reason I'm here talking to you, the reason we're talking about buying you is not for your engineering. He said, I've been going out to sport bike events and talking to young people and all this stuff. And he says, now, do you want to know why I did what I did with Harley? He said, what I did was realize we had a focus that and, and said that there was a window in time where there was a group of people, the baby boomers, who were going to hit their second childhood and have money. And when they have money, they're going to also be nostalgic because they're going to be in their 40s and 50s and their kids are going out. And that's where they're ripe for Harley. And he said, but that's going to fade. And he said, to grow Harley Inc., I'm going to need lower cost bikes. But what I've done with Harley to make it so valuable, it's like a Rolex brand. And I do not want to put my brand on cheap products, low cost products. And I don't want to lose the focus of, of what it is, the historical focus. So that's what you're for. You're to sell to those people. And he said, some, there may be some periods in time. So he said, Harley's sales are going to go up and down, but they're always going to be high margin if I can keep the brand where it is. They're always going to be that way. And he said, but I need volume to keep it going. So I see Harley Inc. owning Harley motorcycles and Buell. And there may be times when you're selling more volume of Buell motorcycles than Harley's. And then they then will change and they'll go over. But I need you for that. I went, okay. I'm now in the presence of genius. I get it. I see what you did. Holy smokes, this makes all the sense in the world. Um, So just a few years into, um, you know, they bought us in 93. So by 95, we were already working on that project, the revolution, Mm. because he had hired a woman marketing person, which made everybody mad. (laughs) Because he wasn't one of the good old boys. And she had gone out and done research and said, he needs a new motor. He needs a performance motor. 
to help build the brand. And then we can build, you know, lower cost entry-level stuff. But he needs a, a halo bike and should be water-cooled. And we should do that. So go back to Porsche because JetBlue standard work with them on the Nova project and always wanted to see that happen. And they had done a lot of, they also did a lot of work on other stuff behind the scenes for Harley, like designing their transmissions and stuff like that. Porsche does a lot of consulting work. And um, so we launched that project, which is basically take the VR kind of and make a street version of it, which means you had to change a lot because it wasn't even a very durable race engine. So it, you know, wouldn't need a lot to be a street engine, but Porsche was willing to do that. So we were working on that project and it was a Buell project um, that was scheduled to come out in 98. Um, so that would have been like 10 years after the original VR should have come out. And it had fuel in the frame and split radiators and all things I wanted to do in 88. And so we built a couple of those and um, we built prototypes of that and it was all progressing along. And Vaughn retired. And the day he retired, the lights went off oh. in the building. And they just lost what he wanted to do with the company. And so people came up and go, well, wait a minute. We should have that engine. I'm like, well, but your customers don't want it. Yeah, but we're Harley. We should have that engine. And we should have it first. And we're going to fix it because it looks stupid. So 50 pounds later, they were done fixing it and making it look appropriate and uh, didn't fit in my chassis anymore. And they're like, well, you know, redesign your chassis. And I said, okay, the engine weighs 210 pounds now. You know, the Ducati engine weighs 160 pounds. I, I can make up 30 pounds in chassis design over them, but I can't make up 50. So this doesn't make any sense. And they said, well, we don't want you to change the engine at all. And anyhow, it kind of fits our image. And we really think that, you know, you should just have Harley engines and to mix up with the old one. So we took the fuel and frame concept and everything and applied the XB and it gave us a chance to redo the engine and with XB motors are very good. And they led to a much improved Sportster engine some years later. Um, you know, so we did the best we could. And at the same time, we did the blast for them. Yeah. And the blast yeah. had a lot of the revisions that we then duplicated on the XB series motors, the plastic you know, a little cover for the push rods and all that kind of stuff, which a lot of that was done because, you know, we worked with the manufacturing people and said, you know, if we're going to make a low cost bike. What are all your problems? What are the things that cause you nightmares? And, you know, they were all oh, the trapdoor transmission having to fit that stack up of tolerances to make it that right. Why can't we just have a transmission that goes in and, you know, how many times they have issues with the, you know, push rods leaking on the assembly line and all these kinds of things and how complex it was. And that, you know, the old Sportster uh, left side case had like seven different screw lengths in it. So they would always be screwing in a short screw into a long hole and stripping out the threads, which meant the crankcases were junked. I mean, they're doing this on the assembly line. So the XBs had yeah, every yeah, screw the same, yeah. just lots yeah. and lots of little stuff that really added up to a big cost savings on the motor. Um, but Vaughn left and other people took over. And the other horrible thing that happened was they wound up just getting all full of themselves and they wound up buying the Bridge and Stratton plant, the old Vanguard plant, but they didn't shut down Capital Drive. So all of a sudden, they put a $1,200 engine bill on my engines, on Buell engines coming out of Harley that wasn't there before to pay for the waste of having two buildings which were inefficient and oh by the way when the guy you know when they went virtually bankrupt again and the guy took them back over the you know the guy who's uh the turnaround guy came up i give his name now um 
uh, in 2009 or 2008, whenever that was, the guy closed down Buell, but um, he wound up fixing all that and stopping all the stupidity, you know, but, you know, they had this big plant. They bought enough equipment to build 500,000 bikes a year when they were building 250 because we got to be ready. I, I'm, I'm sitting in meetings going, what are you doing? What if it doesn't go? I mean, what if it doesn't grow? What, what are you doing? Well, we, we just got on the cover of Manufacturing Magazine. Well, I said, that'll make you a lot of money. <laughs> right. You know, well, they didn't start it in the garage. You know, we're talking about guys that, you know, now, they, now they're big and they're all full of themselves. So they're hiring executives out of Chrysler and places like that. And you kind of go, okay, this guy's such a great correct executive at a large automotive company. Why is he coming to Harley? Maybe he doesn't think he's going to make it big. Well, anyhow. <laughs> So I, I got There's a lot of silliness that went on there and a lot of waste. Uh, the good, you know, that led to their mess, that led to that disaster in 2008 and 9, where they were just wildly out of control. And it was, it started happening as soon as, well, you know, there were a couple of stages and, and through Jeff, through, you know, two CEOs after him, it was still kept kind of the inertia going. Although underneath it, that thing had fallen apart with us. They had lost the vision of what Vaughn had. And by the time Jeff was gone, the next CEO after them, they were lost. They were lost. I, I'm you sure see it. <laughs> it must have been terribly frustrating having all these, you know, roadblocks put in front of you. But I would like to know uh, of the, the Buell bikes, um, what are some of the innovations that you introduced that you're most proud of? Well, the uh, inside out front brakes, which are. Yes. Yes. Incredibly light, um, you know, lowered inertia. Uh, very responsible for why our bikes handle one, a big mm -hmm. contributor to why our bikes handle so well when everybody tests them, whether they're Buells or EBRs. I look at People those and I go, realize how important that was. Why isn't everyone doing this? It makes sense. I, I will tell you the reason why everybody isn't doing it is because nobody designs their own brakes. Mm. They call 1 800 Brembo <laughs> or 1 800 Nissan. Sure. That's what everyone does. Now, if you were Brembo, every sport bike manufacturer is buying two front brake discs, two calipers, all the little floating hardware, and the rotor carrier from you. And they're doing it in the way they typically do, where the buyer goes in and runs down every line and says, are you being efficient, making this part efficiently, blah, 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 blah. You know, and squeezes them down until they're just making a profit. That's how everybody, you know, does it. All of a sudden, you have a thing that has... Half as many parts? No. Only one caliper instead of two. Um, instead of 20 fasteners and rotor carrier holders and things, you've got six. Um, all these things are happening. One brake line, because they usually sell you a complete bled system and all that kind of thing. What marketing sales guy, business leader in that company is ever going to say, let's promote replacing this dual system with a single? None. Mm. Wow. It's a hard pitch. Yeah. <laughs> and I've heard this directly from one of the major manufacturers of brake components. Going, how? But they'll save so much money. <laughs> I'm going to be playing devil's advocate here because, by their nature, motorcyclists can be a reactionary bunch, and the radial disc is a very 
different looking break. And we've, we've gotten very conditioned, particularly on sport bikes. You want to see those two 320s up there. That's what you've gotten used to seeing. And it's, it's hard. It's hard to get away from that. You see something that's very radically different. And your very first reaction is, oh, shit, that's goofy. No, but you are then very you correct. Think, you think about it and then you realize, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. But it's like that first impression, you know? It, and, you know, it's it would take marketing effort to do it, you know, to yes, convince people. And once it was convinced, it would work. And motorcyclists are very conservative. They are not. <laughs> the <laughs> motorcycle <laughs> buying public just doesn't like change. If they're a sport oh, God, bike no. guy, the bike should look like an you know, R1 or whatever it is, you know. And if it's a uh, cruiser guy, it looks like an Indian or Harley. Like, oh, that's what they look like. And anything out of that doesn't sell. Uh, and I, that's one of the things you wake up going, honest to God, this is the truth. Now, with enough marketing, things will sell. Like if you go right. GP racing and you all these promotion and it slowly feeds down and you pay the journalist a lot of money. But anyhow, uh, <laughs> give them lots of free goodies. No, I, mean, I get I've it. lived this industry a long time. I it get is it. the way it works. I ride a, so a Honda with a DCT. I ride a Honda with so a DCT and people, a lot of people are like, I don't know. That's too weird. I, yeah. I want to have a clutch, but why? I mean, think about it, you know? Which, which, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, but one of the things that, you know, it's one of the things that interests me about electric. Well, we're getting there. Mike, did you have a question before we get into the next? Yeah, I do. Um, I have a question. You were talking about the uh, oil or or Mm -hmm. gas in the frame and then using the tanks uh, for air intake and we've seen that before like uh emma has the where people try move things around and try to make it look traditional to kind of keep the traditional look traditional look but create functionality through like other sources on the bike and like as you were talking about it i was thinking about like other bikes like the goldwing that uh emma converted has something like that where it's like a fake tank and and uh all the electronics but um yeah goldwings have fake tanks because you sit on top of the the gas tank Mind yes, yes. It yep. just you know, like it, it all comes down to engineering and like the people looking at it to be like, well, how do we maintain this, but also you know create more functionality and stuff like that? But then I'm thinking like, well, this sounds a lot to me like um, it sounds very similar to me like arch motorcycles. Thanks, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm, I'm just wondering, having- <laughs> <laughs> reaching for that beer, that look good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> a lovely <beer. laughs> Oh, even better. Jeez. Uh, I told her I can't leave right now. You got to bring me. <laughs> did she just bring you pizza? Did she, Mike? Did she just bring you a pizza? Pasta, carbonara. pasta. Arch mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Did, yeah. oh, well, I hope you've got enough for everyone. <laughs> yeah, I'll be right over. Always. Mike, did you ever get your question out? I was just kind of like, you know how I, I say, my, she always says, you know, you talk so much, but you don't say shit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> talk a lot. But, uh, yeah, but like when you look at the, like Arch Motorcycles is a very similar thing, but they also have that V-Twin. I think they're over like 2000 CC. Um, and it sounds a lot to me like uh, Orange uh, Race Bike, uh, a lot of similarities to it, where it's like kind of a muscle cruiser. You know, it's got that cruiser heart. 
but it's a, a very performance bike. And that's what they push with the arch bike. And they also do have the split uh, billeted aluminum tank. Like, do you know much or have you looked too much into arch or, or uh, what's your thoughts on that? No, I just, I haven't looked into it, uh, you know, technically I've been looking, you know, they're pretty. Yeah. It's cool. Good answer. And it's a very different bike to yours, Eric. Yeah. It, yeah. It's a boutique bike as opposed to a race bred bike. Yeah, well, and, and it's it's a lovely bike, and there's lots of cool things that are out there. You know, we had, what I was trying to do was build, you know, bikes that would sell uh, and compete uh, for the sport bike market, for the entry level market. You know, with the blast, trying to build a bike that you know we could sell for thirty nine hundred dollars, and it would have been great. And that's another project that was killed by that twelve hundred dollar engine penalty, which makes me so angry because we had derivatives of that with fuel injection and a bigger displacement. And, Right. You know, the better transmission that came in the XP, we were never allowed to put in that bike because, oh, those bikes don't make any money. Yeah, they do. You're just shuffling it into your overhead. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Anyhow, you know, it made us look like we never made any money. And actually, we were funding the waste. Yeah. Luckily, that guy wound up, Keith Wandell, wound up fixing. I mean, he did a lot of things. The sad part was he never got to see, he never really... By the time he figured out, he had already shut down Buell. Hmm. Um, and um, if he'd have had the time to do the numbers and figure out what's going on, he would have realized we were making the money. Um, but, you know, um, the whole idea of, of you know, innovation, you know, there's a lot of things you can do. There's, you know, innovation, there's art, there's, you've got to blend it all together. And, uh, but, you know, I've always been, you know, kind of obsessed with it, that this idea of, you know, how can I make, how can I make something that has less waste that's simpler and cleaner and, and still gives the, the owner a great riding experience? I don't want any junk on it. And I always wanted to, I was much more interested in building bikes. You know, I've been the bike company started small. I really, my interest was getting more and more people on two wheels and selling sport bikes to people and, and you know, trying, that's why I went back. I, you know, was thinking about the safety of the enclosed drum wheel, you know, safety things and that stuff has always been big on my mind. And, um, it's just it, it's it's hard to do all that in the environment of a, of a big corporations, and as you know, we had you know the thing happened with Harley, and you guys know a lot about what we did there. But then we did this started EBR, yes, and you know we made a world class bike that you know was finishing on the podium in AMA races in its first season. You know we went over to World Superbike, and our second season there, or the season we got shut down in, we were in the hunt. Um, Finally, um, and, and this is a hell of an endeavor for a little company out of East Troy, Wisconsin. I was really proud of it. But along with that, we were designing a huge number of products for uh, for Hero over in India, mm -hmm. um, which included, you know, hybrid scooters and electric things because they wanted to go global. Hmm. And um, so, you know, we showed up at the you know, what it was the 2014 Delhi show. The, all the new products they were the dominant product of the show. They just embarrassed, you know because their real fear was Honda was coming into, into India to compete against them. And they had, were their ex partners. And so their big deal was for 2014, Honda's coming in big. They're going to have a whole lot of new product at the show. What are we going to do? Well, we wound up showing a bunch of concept bikes, plus a bunch of bikes that were going into production. And I think there were 13 products that were shown up. I think they showed 16 or 17 products there. 13 of them came from East Troy, Wisconsin. 
They all said hero on them. We we designed them, we built them and shipped them to them. And they kicked Honda's ass at that show and just were the talk of the town. But they made a decision to pull away from the global, um, the whole global endeavor and focus back on India because Honda was attacking them hard in India. And all the, most of the products we were doing were for export again, because their Mm. goal was to sell outside of India. Let's become a big brand and compete with Honda outside of India. Well, Honda was coming after them so hard that they kind of, and a high level executive said, nope, we're stopping this whole global expansion thing and focus back on India. So they didn't need the products we were designing to sell. We have beautiful 250 ah, in four different versions, uh, uh, a sport bike, a cruiser, a uh, on-off bike, and a street fighter. It was oh. beautiful. Made much more power than a Honda 250. It was gorgeous. Uh, damn it. But <laughs> again, in, in India, that's a premium small volume market mm-hmm. for a 250. Oh, yeah. right. They were building back then 6 million a year. And I think they might be building close to 10 million a year. Oh, that's yeah. his company, Hero. Hero's and, huge. But, but Almost everything they built is 100 to 150 cc. I was going to say a big bike's at 150. So again, this was all for export, so it didn't make any sense when they did this. Now I think they're, you know, now they did some deal with Harley. It's crazy, but anyhow, um, that's what happened there. But man, we were designing some amazing stuff. We had this really cool hybrid scooter, a serial hybrid that was just freaking awesome. And uh, we went back to work with Porsche on that because. Uh, I have some friends there and, and uh, uh, we, we did the concept vehicle, for, let's say it was 2012 uh, Delhi show. And it was the, it, it won best, you know, motorcycle concept of the show, this hybrid scooter. Um, so they were, wanted to commercialize it. And so ABL of India started working on the engine and about nine months later came back and said, that engine can't be built. So they came back to us and said, you gave us a stupid project. It can't be done. And I said, just give it to us. I'll get it done. And then I call up Klaus Fuss at, you know, uh, at, at Porsche and say, here's what I'm trying to do. And he goes, oh, that sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, uh, it was really cool. Sorry, your hands up, and I'm talking. No, that's okay. You talk away. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a couple things. I love as you're talking and seeing this passion come through on these projects that you worked on from small bikes. Like that's not anything a lot of us associate with you. Um, you know, and and also going back, I want to say, you know, it it, it sucked, and I think a lot of people all agree, and we still talk about the the companies that Harley has ruined and I'm bitter about that. And one of them is Buell. So for that, I am sorry, but the good thing that came out of it was EBR. And that was one of the best bikes ever. I mean, a perf- true performance bike. Um, I have a question for you because we have listeners who send us emails and ask us uh, for advice all the time. And I figure this question comes up now, now and then, you're the perfect perfect person to ask. And they say, uh, there's a Buell for sale near me. Should I buy it? Will I be able to get parts? Will I be able to maintain it? So what is your opinion, Eric? Should they go ahead and buy that Buell? That's, that's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> that's a tough one. I, I mean, honestly, uh, it, you know, Harley doesn't make parts for him anymore. Uh, they shut that down immediately upon reaching whatever the limit was of time that they have to provide parts by law. Um, 
There are some dealers who have a pretty good group of parts. Um, There's some companies overseas, more than in the U.S., that are making parts for them. A company up in Sweden. um, Where's the other guy out of Belgium, maybe? Um, Because there are a lot of Buells in in Europe as well. Um, And and, uh, so some stuff's available. Man, I don't know. They're such great motorcycles. It's heartbreaking. That's the answer. That's the answer right there. The answer (laughs) is yes, because these are unique and special and significant bikes, and anyone should take the opportunity to own one in their lifetime. There you go. We made about 140,000 of them. So there are enough of them around for people to be making parts, and they have a lot of commonality. You know, all the XBs shared so many parts, even if they look different. Um, So it seems like there's some businesses staying alive doing that. And again, at several dealers, there's a dealer in Minnesota and then a de- this dealer up in Appleton, Wisconsin, who have parts for them and really work to scrounge parts from everywhere and make them available. So, you know, again, they, they're, they're great motorcycles. What, the same situation, unfortunately, kind of exists with EBR too, which is, you know. Well, what we really need is a young Eric Buell who took that Barton and made all the parts that he needed to make that better. Well, that's what we need. Somebody like <laughs> a young you to keep all those bikes going and make those parts. Well, Nigga, you just, you just hang on there, Liza. What? He's not old. Eric's not an old man. He's not a great deal older than me. So the obvious question is, Eric, what are you doing now, darling? Yes, what that's I mean? what we're getting to. Yeah, what is Eric Buell doing right now in December 2020? Well, you know, it's kind of after those businesses, you just hold your head in your hands and said, I don't know what more I can do. You know, mm-hmm. I've done everything I can. I've built the real thing, the American sport bike that was world class, that can compete with all the best in the world. You know, we won shootouts with our street bikes over all the other brands in other countries. Like, I remember we went in Australia, you know, against all the other street fighters, the Kawasaki's and Aprilia's and Ducati's. And we were the greatest, the best of all. So, really, you know, that's dang it. But, you know, the only investors I could get were uh, uh, a hero had invested in us, um, you know, mostly because they wanted the new product. But, you know, nobody in the U.S. would invest. I went everywhere. You just go, damn it, you know. And uh, so I I was kind of frustrated. You just go, you know, what more can I do? Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I, you know, (laughs) basically all the money I ever made out of Buell went into EBR and was gone. So that's the way life goes. Um, I'm kind of, I don't regret it. Um, I wish it had worked. I regret that people couldn't stand back. People lost their jobs, but I'm proud that they had some great jobs. People worked there, loved it. They got to do some amazing stuff. They could all look at each other in the eye and go, we build a better 250 than Honda right here, you know. Um, But then they have to go somewhere else and work (laughs) because it's gone. So I was frustrated and just walk away for a while. Um, but then I got started on this electric thing and there are a couple of things that I, w- I was really interested in electric and I started looking at that while I was with Harway back in 2005, 2006. Oh, really? You know, I saw yeah. it coming and said, you know, let's talk about it. We need to do this. And I finally got them to go, okay, then we go out and visit all the companies and come back and kind of give them a report on what I thought on electric. So, um, you know, we had already been doing research inside. I went out, did that research, met talked to all those companies, came back kind of gave him a report. And then it's just because what I, I saw where electric could work on, I saw where it couldn't work. 
And so we started working on things where it could work. Uh, we were talking about it at Buell, and of course that all went away. And as soon as we had EBR, we were talking about an EBR. We did a couple concept bikes for Hero that worked on that. And so I wound up talking to some guys who out of Europe who were interested in it. And I said, you know, I'll, I'm, I'm interested. When it comes to electric, I think I need know what needs to be done. And um, I, as again, as I like it is because there's an area where um, people's minds aren't made up on what an electric bike should be. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not traditional, super, you know, super bike based formula, you know, GP based or nostalgia cruiser based it's people want transport and again although people think i'm all about racing i'm not i'm all about two wheelers and i'm very much a futurist and i think people will be more and more on two wheels and um they have been to the level of people in the united states like some of the investors i talked to i remember one guy i talked to and he had been he yeah i own a harley and all this stuff i'm in a bikes a lot i said well you know this is what we're trying to sell ebr i said you know there's at that time, it was like, you know, 50, 55 million, you know, motorcycles sold a year in this hero company working with it, doing six million. Of them. And he said, he got up and left the room. He got up and he said, that's just bullshit. I left. What? People don't understand what motorcycling is in the world. I mean, it is the huge means of transport. Not as big as bicycling, but damn close. So last year, I think there was probably 65 million sold motorcycles. Probably like 120 million bicycles. Uh, <clears throat> so I think it's open to what you can design. Uh, I think it's needed desperately. Um, and um, uh, for many, many reasons, as you know, I, I you know, <laughs> I had a 200 year plan with Buell, which I did. We laughed about it. Mm. Some of the executive hardly laughed at me. And I said, you know, the idea of a 200 year plan is just to say, you know, it just helps you put perspective. You know, are people going to need personal transportation 200 years from now? Like if they're working in the asteroids, you know, are they going to wait for the corporate, you know, the company shuttle rocket to arrive? <laughs> are they going to climb on a, <laughs> that's the flow. That's our electric bike. Yes. Electric oh. motorcycle. Yeah. I love that you are still in the game and you're leaping ahead with the innovation because I think that's something that you do so well is, is I mean, innovation and bringing your engineering and your passion. And um, we've all ridden uh, electric bikes here. We're, you know, zero is right up the street from us. Um, so we're, we're experienced, you know, ridden the live wire. Um, there's so many new companies coming to the game, like, I know that there's so many out there on the fringe, you know, and you get like uh, BMW brings out the scooter or, you know, you hear about all these little projects, but, um, or, you know, you even had KTM had the, the free ride and you had Alta and you got all these great bikes and not yet any of them have really taken off, but I know that we're about to just be inundated. So I'm glad to hear that you're there at the forefront, getting your foot in the game for when that wave hits. Um, how soon do you think uh, that people are going to be like, what's going to be the tipping point to get people from the, you know, gas engines to electric? Well, you know, it, it's, I love motorcycles. I'm passionate about, passionate about two wheels, but I'm a businessman. And, you know, fundamentally when we talk about business. It all starts at the top line, which is how many are you going to sell? Mm-hmm. 
And then how much is it going to cost you to sell them? You know, as you go to bump below that, you know, get down to a profit. But fundamentally, where are their volume sales? And one of the things when I came back to Harley was I said, and it was 2006, seven, when I did the report after visiting Mission and Zero and Bramo and Vectrix and all these companies. I said, you know, an electric Harley Davidson as a replacement for a gasoline Harley Davidson makes no sense. And it's not going to make sense for a long time. But urban, lightweight, like electric bicycles, something like that, mm-hmm. that's, that can happen right now. Mopeds, because it's all about. Again, who would buy it and why? You know, where is there a lot of volume of potential customers? Obviously, electric bicycles have proved that point. Mm-hmm. Sales of them are unbelievable and exploding, right? Which makes all sense in the world. And then, you know, so where else in motorcycling? The answer is okay. If you so just I'm, do bad, if you basically do physics, I, I got to go one back to one thing is, you know, I, I, I'm a huge Elon Musk fan. I admit mm-hmm. it. Uh, initially, when he came out, I thought he was a shyster. And as I watched him, and this is a long time ago, I'm like, eh, this guy's kind of, and then I'm like, oh, shit, this guy has it. And I've been a believer in him for a long time. But his fundamental thing is, first, he came to the table with money <laughs> from his first business, which, and he's, and so he's not, I'm sure they have a board of directors, but he's the guy. Mm-hmm. And he's brilliant, technically. Um, uh, I'm friends with the guy who was his first employee at SpaceX, who's an avid motorcyclist, by the way. Oh, really? Um, and this guy goes, man, you don't want to tell Elon something can't be done because he'll sit down at your desk and do it for it. And you are, and he'll destroy you. That's <laughs> <laughs> fundamentally, but he gets it. And all the stuff he's doing works, makes sense. So if you sit down and do the physics and the math, first of all, speed, the bird of energy is cubic with speed. Not squared, it's cubic, okay? That's truth. You mm-hmm. have to do the basics physically, believe it or not, but somebody will tell you that. So if you're going to do something that's going to go, so if you do a product that is 20 miles an hour, and now you're going to go you know, 60 miles an hour, it needs 27 times as much energy. Right. Okay. You figure out how many BTUs are in a gallon of gas and how many BTUs are in a whatever thing you want to use, whether it's metric or not. How many are in a pack of batteries? And you're going to go, oh, oh my God, who knew gasoline had so much energy in it? So you can't go fast. Number two is you need to take a lot of batteries mm-hmm. if you're going to go faster, if you're going to go distance. Now, you know, when a model, model X, uh, you know, Tesla weighs 6,000 pounds. When you climb in and drive it away, you don't know that. Mm-hmm. That the other SUV you have weighs 4,200 pounds. There's 1,800 pounds of battery getting you there. Now, a motorcycle going 80 miles an hour burns about the same amount of energy, sometimes more than a car going 80 miles an hour because our coefficient of drag sucks. I mean, right. we're really dirty right. compared to a modern car. That's a reality, you know. So where are you going to put those 1,800 pounds of batteries? You're not. How about 500? Want to pick up a bike that weighs, you know, take a Harley that weighs 700 pounds and add another 500? It's going to be very unhappy. So you put less batteries and you don't need range. You get some range if you go 20 miles an hour. 
30 miles an hour, which is kind of the doctoring that people do with their, oh, this is what this bike's going to do. But the bottom line is, I mean, electric motors go crazy fast. They're wonderfully <laughs> fast and simple, but they also burn up batteries like crazy. So you've got to look at the physics of it all and go, where's it going to work? And how many people are going to buy, you know, pay extra for something that doesn't do as good a job as a gasoline vehicle? Not many. Right. So One of the fundamental flaws that the car companies did was build cheap electric cars because you know, those are the poor people in the high volume that need it. Right. Well, those are also the people that are worried. They don't have the money to have a second car to make a long trip. What Elon did is build a company by cars for people who can't afford a second car. And they were able to buy it as a funding. And by the way, he could also make one that worked pretty well. And they're better, better every year because you know, he's doing his own batteries. He attacked it. You know, he has enough money to get at the core business. But, you know, when you're talking about some of the products that I see people bring out, you know, their motorcycle truck products and, you know, the press will say, this is the Elon Musk of, you know, this is the Tesla of motorcycles. I go, oh, make me throw up. <laughs> so, um, I've, I've, got a, I've got a question for you, Eric, as both a businessman and an engineer. And it, it, you know, we're talking about Elon Musk and he's a visionary and I know he loves infrastructure. Do you ever see a time in the future where electric vehicles are actually picking up current from the roadway via an infrastructure and dispensing with the needs of battery? It's being able to either magnetically or by a physical contact, almost for want of a better term, a slot car system, where they actually pick up energy from a roadway, not everywhere, but say on freeways. There's a lot of of complexity to that. Um, There there would be, but I mean, you know. Basic stuff that is like, you know, maybe that could happen. Um, You know, I'm I'm not sure what the, you know, what the solution will be. I I am certain that, you know, gasoline is going to be replaced. It has to be, Um, you know, and maybe hydrogen is going to be something down the road and maybe this and that is, you know. You know, I had high futures. Yeah. Electrics real and and where it can work is, you know, where the best places for it to work is where it'll work well. And so what we try to design are products that you are better than a gasoline powered equivalent mm-hmm. could be. That's what that's where you could win. It's just say, right. wow, that's the real win. It's like, my God, that's a better bike. That's not, I'm going to, that's not as good, but I'm putting my green hat on and I'm going to empty my wallet just for the good of mankind because most no, people it's, don't do it's that or can't be afford to do it. It's a better product. Yeah. It's, it's, it's got to be a better product because, you know, being the environmentalist and wearing the green hat only goes so far if you're riding a sucky vehicle. Yeah. Just to yeah. be able to wear that hat, it's got to be a better product. And for what it's worth, I've always seen, Electric propulsion is is wonderful, but it's hindered with just battery design and battery technology. That's it's really like having a fighter jet engine, which is powered by something from back in Victorian times. Powered by coal. Yeah, yeah. You know, battery technology <laughs> is is holding everyone back. <laughs> 
Yeah, the yeah, spider yeah, jet. That, as soon as it leaves the carrier, you know, then the next the the refueling plane comes on with the coal chute. Yeah, and they're furiously funneling <laughs> coal in the back. I, I think that's a valid analogy. You know, I'm I'm curious about something. There's a steampunk you know, image. Yeah. Right, but um, I'm I'm curious about something about electric. We were down. Liza and I were in Pomona maybe four years ago watching the Red Bull Straight Rhythm races. And Alta was there first time they had an electric bike. And I don't know if we really want to bring up Alta's relationship with Harley during this, but um, anyway, uh, we met some of the investors there with Alta and they sounded very similar to you. You know, the time's right. Battery technology just has to get a little bit better, but you know, the maintenance cost is so much lower. The price is coming down, but you know, four years ago, you know, those guys thought we were already going to be there now, but but we don't seem to be a whole lot closer from a business standpoint. Is it the batteries? I mean, because some of the, you know, the zero bikes are great. I thought the Alta bike was had a lot of potential. Um, it seems like they're getting pretty darn good and they're pretty reasonable priced. You know, from a business standpoint, why are they not catching on? Uh, well, motorcycling is, is a tough world because um, it's so traditional as we talked about earlier. Right. And I couldn't even buy in a, you know, everybody kept saying an inside out brake, single disc couldn't possibly work. Meanwhile, we're finishing on the podium at an AMA superbike races. Prove it. Sakes. You know, how many of you idiots out there can ride like, you know, <laughs> who we're talking Period. about that it won't work, <laughs> you know. <laughs> just that was a break. fluke. <laughs> but they're fixed minded. So that's one big thing. That's a problem. So again, if you were going to buy you know, a zero is a replacement. It performs like a 600cc bike, you know. You know, it's good, quick, you know, not too heavy, no range. And that's the truth of it compared to 600. Are you going to ride that zero right. across the country? You can't. You can't. So, I'm curious, um, so, kind of a so that's a big deal. You know, again, is it, you know, if you want to have one, the fourth one in your garage, that's okay. But if it's going to be your only bike, that's an issue. And that to me is what's frustrating is. And yeah, well, I'm curious. You guys so probably don't you know how much money when it has gone into zero. I do. You'd be, you would, you would yeah. just pass out. But anyhow, um, cause it's an investment group out of Europe. that are very green minded and very, 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 very wealthy. Um, no business person would ever have invested in it. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious about the market potential in, say, you know, uh, Asia then, including India, of course, you know, because I'm talking about for the e-bikes and that kind of stuff. Do you think because it's so much more utilitarian there, right? Like we talk about how many little bikes they sell over there. They sell a ton of them. Do you see just a, a big volume market in this kind of stuff at some point? Well, there's there's definitely potential in Asia. The, the issue is it's still expensive to do something electric. Uh, to give you an idea, the 100cc bikes that we work on for Hero, they retail for $600. Mm-hmm. That's a bike with a four-speed transmission, right? Two-valve wow. head, but it's got fuel injection or carburetor, right, which has jets. I mean, if you just do a bill of material, you know, do a Boothroyd and Dewhurst type engineering analysis, you go, how the hell do they do that? You know, it's got a muffler on it. It's got a little catalytic converter, but it retails for $600. It has tires. I, I mean, <laughs> yes. You can fix it with a rock and a screwdriver. 36 per wheel. That's know? because there's a crank in there somewhere. Because the, the motor was engineered, was designed usually 40 years ago. I mean, that's how they're making these, these bikes so cheap. Um, I, I visited the Atlas Honda plant in um, Pakistan where they – make like a million bikes a year and they're selling for like 
800 to 1200 dollars and i watched them make them but it's it's old design and engineering is which makes it affordable and, and, you know, so that's the kind of price point you have to compete with. And mm-hmm. That's a problem electrically. Yeah. So you need to hit something that's that, that'll sell more to the middle class. So the volume to be lower, but the, the scope of how many potential middle class buyers are, that's real. But again, those people still use them every day. And very few of them are going to do a green thing that they can't really use for very far. And so... You know, it's, it's finding when the right spot. So again, if you do a performance bike, you want it to perform. And if it's a performance bike with a battery, it's going to run out of batteries quickly. And that just that that just limits it. So you, you really need to do them where they're going to work. So what we focused on with fuel is urban to suburban. So they have micro mobility, which are these little scoopy scooters, you know, or a bicycle with a small battery, of 500, you know, lots of watt hour of battery. But if you go and say, okay, what if I want to commute 30 miles, 40 miles and do it pretty quickly? You know, that's an everyday usage thing. Mm-hmm. The top speed isn't going to get over 50, maybe 60. Hmm. Okay. That could work. Now, what else can I do to make it worthwhile? So in the case of, you know, in the flow that we have, that has larger storage capacity in it than a scooter, but it looks like a sport bike. Um, so now it's an everyday, uh, you know, like most people in Europe who ride to Paris or something, they don't ride their Ducati, you know, uh, excuse me. Um, you know, super bike replica that they have for Sundays, if they have their money, that's not what they ride into the city. And of course, a lot of people don't even have one of those, but anyhow, there's a lot of scooters. There's a lot of small motorcycles with baggage, you know, luggage on it. Then that's their everyday commuter. Um, that's a target for electric. Um, but you need to, you know, but what more can you give them? And that's what we are trying to do. It's more than just not, okay, I'll build a bike that, you know, kind of looks like their bike. But, you know, again, it's a little more expensive and you know, it doesn't quite have this. But the answer is, okay, what if it does more? Um, and that's kind of what we're looking at is the options. And we've got a lot of designs and products that are in there. So we did our first bicycle, the one that's in production. Mm-hmm. You know, that's got two batteries in it. So, and it's very heavy duty. So it's heavier than, than you know, it's on the heavy end for an e-bike, but it has very large range compared to most e-bikes. And if you ride an e-bike, you know, 15 pounds doesn't make a difference. If you ride a, you know, the bike that I, the bicycle, the pedal bike that I ride all the time, I'm obsessed with it being lightweight, right? But you know, if I ride an e-bike, it's not such a big deal. So I just rode my e-bike across Wisconsin, um, which was um, uh, like 200, 230 miles or something like that, you know, in just two and a half days. So I did 93, wow. 95 miles the first day and like 98 the second. Loaded up with my, you know, pack, my uh, tent, my uh, uh, clothes, my food, the stove, you know, everything. It weighed 140, awesome. 130 some pounds when it was loaded up. Wow. But, you know, to do a touring ride on a bicycle, you can't do 90 miles. I mean, yeah, maybe so, Peter Sagan could, but, I, you know, uh, who's a, you know, a Tour de France kind of guy. Uh, but everyday people do like 40 mile rides if they're loaded up with, you know, gear, if they're doing a touring ride. And that was real because I had enough battery. I could carry spare batteries with me. And then I, I, I rented space at a, uh, at an RV sites where you have electricity. So I just nice. paid for an RV site rental pulled my bike up 
plugged in the chargers because I carried them in the saddlebags, charged my batteries and went on. So I didn't need a chase vehicle. I'm like that Harley Trippy. It's, it's something real that you can do. That a person could do that without a lot of money that you could do every day, you know? So that was just an example and kind of pushing it. So, you know, can you do 95 miles, you know, on a single set of batteries? Yeah. That's getting wow. serious. Now, now yeah. it's not just a toy. This is a commuter vehicle. Yeah. yeah. Now, and, and then moving on up through motorcycles from that way, but not going to the superbike, which are cool. And, you know, um, you know, I, I admire the passion and, and enthusiasm of the guys who build those bikes, but they're not, it's a hard business. Yeah. The thing we're trying to do is real business that people could buy now. And that's my real goal is I want people out of freaking SUVs and fat cars and overweight and into, into two wheelers. You know, that's my obsession. You know, yeah. That's and I'm it doing. sounds, it sounds like it's, it's really focused on, uh, on like, so they're like the urban market um, of, you know, short distance mobility. Um which, like you mentioned, that that's there. There are a lot of electric scooters out there. Um, are you focusing on scooters at all uh, for for fuel, or is that out of the scope no. for uh, what you have in mind? No, that's what we call micromobility, like the foot scooters that have batteries in them. No, I don't want to go there. You know. Oh, and, no, oh uh, I meant, oh, I meant like road going scooters, like like Vespas. Vespa type. You. Type. Well, <laughs> you know, that's kind of what we did with the flow. I mean, oh, it's yeah. like except that isn't a step through, but it has as much carrying capacity as one. Oh, cool. And, um, uh, um, but it looks like a fun sport bike, you know, and it handles well, you know, it doesn't have little bitty tires that go into the potholes and give you nightmares. It's a pretty, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a great little, whatever. We almost don't want to call it motorcycle because it's more than a motorcycle for someone who's mm-hmm. uh, commuting from the suburbs. Yeah. You know, Cause you don't have to have a backpack to carry stuff. It all just, you lift up again. I replaced the gas tank, but instead of making air pucks in there, you know, you lift it up and there's this huge place where you can throw in, you know, all your groceries or, you know, and uh, then clap, clip it up and it's this sleek looking sport bike. So yeah, we're interested in scooters. We're interested in, in, in commercial vehicles, mm-hmm. stuff for people to del- make deliveries with, oh, you know, cool. in the cities. That's yeah. Big deal. Grub hub and better and safer. One of the things we're going to be launching next year that we're actually going to do a presentation soon on is a um, connected bike that also has cameras and warnings and a lot of shit. So I've mm-hmm. been obsessed with that for a long time. I think we're really about to make that happen and in an affordable way, because again, that's where it matters. That's where the volume is. And that's where you can, you know, really make a difference. You know, as I was saying, the last one is the people I would tell people is, you know, is I'll never be either one of them, but if I were going to be Enzo Ferrari or Sochira Honda, I would have rather been Sochira Honda. Yeah. I love that. I love that you've got this just renewed, like, uh, just excitement and energy over a whole new company now that all the past history doesn't matter. You've got this new thing. You've got your sight set on um, fuel, which I want to make sure people know it's F-U-E-L-L. Tricky how you did that on fuel.us. You can check these out. Um I want to get to make sure everyone gets their last question in because we've kept you so long. I appreciate you coming on so much. And I just, again, I love seeing Sunday your night, passion. I got oh, I know. So <laughs> I want to make sure we get the last questions. Emma, you have a question? It was really just a statement. Um, thanks for coming on, Eric. I mean, it, it's been so enlightening. I knew you were going to be a dynamic guest. 
Liza actually said to me a couple of hours ago, you know, do you think we do you think we've got enough questions? And I said, <laughs> honey, Eric's not gonna have a problem talking about this. <laughs> He's very passionate. <laughs> but you remind me a great deal. I was lucky enough to actually hear Soishiro talk many, many years ago. And he was very, very famously asked, Who is your customer? And he looked genuinely bewildered and he said, Everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Everyone is my customer. I want to make a product for everyone. Yes. And that explains a lot of the goofy stuff that Honda did, like the three wheelers, like the more peculiar contraptions, because they genuinely wanted to make a market for everyone. And I see very much that in you. Um, good luck. This was great. Thanks. You're a visionary. <laughs> Still. Thanks very much. Oh, you're very welcome. I call them like I see them. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else got any last questions for Eric? Uh, no, but man, it was really cool to hear about Project Nova. That's something just seeing pictures of from the museum. I worked for Harley for years in a marketing capacity, too, and a couple other things. And it, it's really cool to me to see when some innovation sparks. Uh, maybe it takes off, maybe it gets snuffed, but it was really cool to see the idea there. and. It was cool to hear about it too. And two, four, and six cylinders. Hell yeah, man! That's neater than hell. <laughs> yeah, it was. It yeah. was an enthusiastic concept. Yes, there you it go. was. Indeed. So, and and tell us a little more about fuel. Um, how much are they selling for? Are you taking orders now? What do people need to know about these new bikes? Well, right now, fuel is you know, running, it's, it's website based and we do the orders off of that. Mm -hmm. We don't have a dealer network. You know, we haven't done that. We do have a distribution. We have a distributor in Belgium who's selling quite a lot, uh, but we haven't done that, you know, in the U S we're exploring this whole idea because we're very small still. I mean, mm -hmm. we're, um, the only bikes we have right now are the, uh, the, the, the e-bike, mm -hmm. uh, what we call a fluid with the two batteries and there'll be a, safety version and a connected version coming next year. And then we have a couple more of that. The motorcycle is still in the prototype stage. We don't have the funding to bring it to production yet. And uh, we'll have to see where that goes. This is my great frustration is that trying to find uh, funding for these kind of projects where there's huge potential volume of sales. And Americans are really true innovators. The products we have, we have in a plant, nobody has anything else like that. You know, we could bring the market because we're not just dreamers, man. I've been in this industry for a long time. I've designed everything from $40,000 super bikes to $600 retail freaking little bikes. And I know what I'm doing. It's just, what you know, somebody fund this because we can make a lot of money. And it kind of makes me crazy when I see people funding projects that technically won't work. But for some reason, people thought they were cool. And then, you know, five years later, they're gone. Or three years later, you go, dang it. You know, and like I said, that's some of the things about Elon is like, you know, he's funding the stuff that's going to work and doing the right stuff. I laugh, you know, and he's teamed up with his Panasonic. And oh, see, he just went, you know, he just went overseas for the battery. Well, no, he had him build a plant that's in the U.S. Oh, by the way, he's just introducing new technology on the batteries that's completely revolutionary that came from him. And yeah, he's kind of doing it in conjunction with Panasonic, but it's that American innovation that's. It's because we're made up of Germans and Japanese and Africans and everything else. Our country is so freaking diverse that we come up with the best amalgam of ideas. 
and just getting the financial community behind us. Um, those of us who are inventing stuff is, uh, you know, what really pay off. It, it looks like we're going to get a, a, some investment, significant investment out of a company uh, out of uh, Belgium, which is going to be wonderful. But it's, it's also you kind of go, geez, oh, man, where the heck are you guys? You know, well, where are you guys? As, as unlikely as it sounds, we may have some multimillionaires listening <laughs> to this podcast when we download it tonight. So just in case, get in touch with Eric Bjorn. He wants your money. <laughs> I want to make you money. I want to... <laughs> right? I, just, I just want to cover some of the specs on this. So you're using a hub motor on this? On the flow, it will be, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, the, uh, you know, the fluid has a, uh, what they call a mid-mount motor right. on the bicycle. But yeah, we have a hub motor on that, which I want. Again, there's a lot of innovation mm -hmm. in the uh, in the motorcycles. Um, and what number what, of patents filed on it and stuff. It's, pre it's very innovative, you know. And what kind of a charging is it going to accept? Um, it's set up for fast charging, high output charging. So it would use the, it's very high voltage. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so it's made to use the fast chargers like, I'm drawing, there's a different kind in the U.S. from the, Europe. And I'm like just level drawing two? a blank on the two Durands. But the way we designed the chassis is you could interchange a module for depending which charge port. That's the only thing you have to change, whether it's in Europe or whether it's in the U.S. So. You know, a lot of those things we took care of. The way we did the battery is 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 set up to be kind of adjust. You know, so it'll accept changes in batteries. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the we're we're using cells, not pouches. Even though pouches have more density, pouches are not where all the innovation's happening. Oh, okay. um, and and you know, you can't. You're biting off too much to do that. I mean, if Elon went to Panasonic, then that's a, that's why you say, hey, you know. You don't start out with your own batteries, and you it, don't it's start. Quite well. a, it, it's quite a shame, Eric, because each of us has an area of expertise within our little group, and Rick is the Harley expert, and I mostly mess around with the British stuff, and we do have electric bike experts, but for some reason they're not with us tonight. Oh, um, but yeah, they 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 get. Oh, you have Thanks. one with you tonight. You have one with you tonight. <laughs> <laughs> we do. I don't know if we're going to call you a wackadoo like we call the other ones wackadoos, but, uh, <laughs> but well, you're no, awfully I, close I, to the group. Well, you've hung out with enough Brits. I call them boffins, and they seem quite happy with that. <laughs> I just hear them call you a wanker. Yeah, well, basically, well, I, I live that life, darling. <laughs> well, and I love hearing, too, that if in Wisconsin, if somebody see might see you out on your your e bike, tooling around, <laughs> that's great. It just reminds me of like years ago when I every now and then see Craig Vetter in some weird shrouded scooter thing, you know. And it's like, it's oh, it's like, yeah, yeah, you know. It's the banana. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming on. I mean, you truly are uh, an innovator, but not just that, an American motorcycle maker. And that's something. Yeah. Kind of, Heck yeah. I know. I appreciate everything you've done, all the innovation. And I, now I want to get some of those brakes on my bikes, man. Um, <laughs> so, oh, um, yeah, they'll just bolt right on. <laughs> I know. Before we Feels wish you good night, Eric, I, I have a request, darling. 
if you've got something coming down the pipeline that you really, really would like to talk about, could we have you back on the show again? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to do it. If it's, you ever have any use for me again, I really enjoyed visiting. It's oh, like just hanging out with fellow motorcyclists. It's very fun. That's exactly um, what this is. My, no, we, uh, we, my we, boss we, bought a Buell today, or sorry, my boss bought a Buell recently, and so we were admiring it today. So my day has been very <laughs> Buell-filled. It's great. <laughs> I have a Buell Beautiful day. next to me at the auto oh. parts store from Montana with an actual bash plate on the front. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's a true testament, that they're still out there. Oh, um, yeah. I still see people riding them. They truly are great yeah. bikes. I know Ulysses in Texas. Absolutely. That the person and, will probably be buried on. Yeah. And I, I, res- <laughs> I resurrected a Buell Blast for a friend of mine earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Too. Yeah. And I, I think it really is a testament to the bike that it's not just the fact that they're out there, but the people who own them generally say, this is the best bike I've ever owned. That's it. People are so pat. The owners are so passionate about those bikes. Well, right. so is the guy that made them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so on behalf That's of the Mi- on behalf of the misfits, Harley may not have recognized the opportunity they missed. Hero may not have recognized the opportunity they missed. We do. So thank you for everything <laughs> you have brought to the motorcycle world. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for four hundred shows. well thank you we'll let you go and we're gonna share some emails and i think we're just gonna like uh fan i'm gonna fangirl a little bit about this great interview we just did <laughs> take care <laughs> all right thanks eric, thanks, eric. take care right. bye 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 stay fast so you thanks. guys how cool is he Super cool. Very good. I know. Super right? duper. We just scratched the surface. I mean, there's wow. so much to talk about each because you know, I we I'd read a bunch about it and we we've always been talking about it, but every little thing he talked about, we could have talked for hours on. That's exactly yeah. it. But again, it was that seeing the look on his face when he was talking about these things. Oh, he was that lit he, designed. Up. Totally. he was. He's mm-hmm. still yeah. there. He's yeah. still there. Yeah, he can't go to bed right now. That's the thing. He's excited. <laughs> Like motorbikes. He's going to try to shave a couple ounces off the bike. I felt like I didn't know if it was taboo to talk about the Livewire and their electric bike because they're literally doing the same thing that he's doing right now. But we didn't we didn't bring that up. Not well, really. I, don't know, I, I don't know how much he had a part in developing that. Was it 05, 06, 07 when he was talking about? Yeah. 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 Like doing it's kind of the same thing. Like he's making an electric motorcycle and an electric bike and hardly just right. in it, right? Oh, yeah. you're talking doing like the bicycle and the motor, but yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm curious how you know what his thoughts on that whole process were and stuff. I remember I when Harley like started that live wire. Well, there you know, there's like the first live wire boot when we would see it like on the Tonight Show and stuff. Like say I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, and then we have like the yeah. new one, right? So I'm gonna say there's two of them. I remember well, like you still when the- can't really buy them, right? Like no, they're oh, out. No, they're can. around. Yeah, they're ready to party. Back. In fact, there are two of them uh, up on Copart right now that have been wrecked. Oh, man. <laughs> so there's another thing, learning about the service yeah. side of it, working in a shop. Yeah. So we had to send a tech out to Milwaukee to get trained in Livewire service, which, of course, if you're a Livewire place, you're going to have to have someone to work on the things. 
So they taught him of the 16-foot fiberglass cane. That's a pole. That was my favorite part. Yes. To, to, pull the de- to pull the energized human off the battery pack. <laughs> you know? Yes. He's reached his full charge. And the, the completely isolated winch you have to use to pull the battery pack out that cannot contact any earth or brown or whatever. Oh. But, you know, pretty wild stuff. You know, it's cool to see that market moving. And with guys like Eric getting into it, too, you know, it's not like we've got a bunch of dummies trying to make a buck. We've got passionate people on two wheels. Well, people who know how to yeah. usable. Thing. Yeah. And, and know how to race. I mean, I just would love to hear more about the super bike racing back in the day. I mean, what wild right. times oh, so you have someone that can they can ride bikes. And I mean, I think that's why, you know, he was on it Harley at a fairly young age. And I think just because he knew how to ride bikes and had an engineering degree. But. Oh, but dropping yeah, really all the engineers cool. and going out and just being like, no, I ride better than you. Being yeah. able to give me the world back to 10. I'm going to throw a couple of gussets on here. We'll be good to go. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was, uh, that was, that was so cool. I, I'm, I'm so appreciative no, no, of him coming on. That was a great interview. Thank you for lining that up, Liza. No problem. And yeah. hey, stay tuned next week for our next <laughs> big surprise guest. Who could it be? I'll give you a hint. But wait, there's more. Another AMA Hall of Famer. Not going to say mm. who it is, but uh, pretty cool guy. Um, yeah, it's Liza Miller. I'm just going to say, um, but you know, <laughs> we have we have a little bit of time to get to a couple emails. Bagel and Emma, I both sent you emails. Can you each just pick one, and I will read one that I have here. Um, and this one came from uh, our friend Steve. He said, "I have some questions Steve! about." fuel lines i have a 99 vfr 800 and it's the first fuel injected bike i've had the fuel hose split open a little bit if it was a carbureted bike i just get bulk gas hose and replace it but this hose has metal fittings permanently clamped to each end of the rubber gas hose it appears to be the one item i cannot buy new for this bike so i'm looking at getting a used one on ebay so um Nothing happened to the hose that would have caused damage to it. So I'm assuming the only reason it split was due to age. So is it worth buying another one that is just as old? Is it possible to have these hoses rebuilt? Uh, What is that type of clamp called? Can I just cut the hose off of the fittings and clamp on or replace my gas line? Um, And uh, on a side note, he says... Um, my wife and I loved the Black Hills Moto Film Festival. She bought me a shirt for my birthday, which I wore on our first moto camping trip. We're really grateful for the few little bright spots this year. They really helped to keep our spirits up. Here's hoping that we have finally have turned the corner on some difficult times. Now I'm going to tell you, I've already answered him and got a solution. So let's see. We'll play a mini game of what would Emma do? Emma, what would you tell him? Right. So. Um... Fuel-injected bike, they usually run at about 40 to 50 PSI. Now, um, you can go down to any parts store and for about $3 a foot buy fuel injection hose, which on that case is going to be 5 sixteenths. What I would do is I would get the hose off the existing fittings and have a look and see what you're dealing with. What I will put money on is there is a barbed metal fitting underneath there. And if that is the case, you're just going to pull the hose off it, cut a new length, and then use proper fuel injection clamps. Again, you can get from any auto parts store. 20 bucks, you're down the road. Now, that's the, that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is 
they're press fittings. So what you're going to do is, where is Steve, does he say? I did not say. In your kitchen. What's that? In your kitchen. I absolutely guarantee that if he's in either a rural or an urban area. Maybe New Jersey. What's that? I think maybe New Jersey. So there's going to be a place that makes hydraulic lines in his town, even if it's a rural town, because that's what all these tractors run on. So he needs to open the yellow pages or get online, look for hydraulic hose manufacturers in his area and just go down with the remains of his crap and say, make me a new one of these. Okay, I'm reading it. I'll do that. No, he's not in New Jersey. That was me telling him about the uh, South Jersey Moto Film Festival that is happening this week. Uh, Go to RevSisters.com. You can still buy a $10 pass for the extended viewing. Um, But here's what I told him, Emma. I told him, do not buy a used one on eBay because an aged hose is not a good hose. I said, you know, most towns have something like a hose shop or you may be able to go to a truck stop or something. I bet you'd be able to get one there. He said, let me try it. He got back to me and said, dude, I just got it repaired at a shop about five miles away from me. There you go. So he said, thanks for the advice. And that is just a good reminder to everyone that there are shops in almost every town. We have one, a host shop here in Santa Cruz that people don't think about going to. You can get custom brake lines made. You can get custom gas lines, hydraulic lines, whatever you need. Uh, there's a lot of shops to service you. So, yeah, I'm glad that that worked out. Thanks for yeah, sharing that in. Yeah, I'm really glad. Yeah, you just said an aged hoe is not a good hose, right? <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm talking about. The hose shop. Not the kind of hose you like. Uh, Wait, like Mike. a fire truck? He absolutely just said shops to service you, and that one just flew over everyone's head. I'm glad you caught it. Thank you. <laughs> it wasn't wasted. All right, Bagel, you got one there? All right. Yeah, I have an, an email from Alex. And Alex says, Emma. Firstly, thank you so much for reading my email last year about the stretched Busa with the dragon paint job on Craigslist. He <laughs> 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 said, I was listening to that. Busa! I, I was listening to that podcast while I rode my bike home on Christmas Eve, and it made me happier than a tornado in a trailer park. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then he continues saying, uh, last podcast, you talked about shop cats. Not sure how it happens, but I quite possibly have in my possession the sweetest shop cat in the world. About seven months ago at work, they mentioned there was a kitten known to have been from a litter of feral cats in the area in a dumpster. I've, I've been wanting a cat for my mice problem in the shop, so it seemed like a great opportunity. I was able to able to usher him into a custom-made cardboard box after I climbed in the dumpster. Once I had him, the first thing I tried was to pet him, which he, of course, tried to murder my fingers with his teeth and claws. <laughs> Nonetheless, I brought him home. I left out food and water, which would disappear, but I didn't see the cat for two months. One day, I found him hiding under my project car. And I was able to coax him out with a fishing lure he played with, and soon he began purring and rubbing up against me. Aww. Then the damn, then the damn cat wouldn't leave me alone. <laughs> Sometimes a silly cat crawls across my face while I'm laying on the ground working on something. Oh, 
And luckily, he is he is gentle and plays with my one-year-old son. Yay. And he provided some adorable pics of this wonderful orange tabby cat, who is now his shop cat. Uh, recounts the tale of a, a har- harrowing encounter with a botfly larva, Ugh. which thankfully uh, his cat uh, named Oliver has uh, survived. So, um, so yeah, and he talks talked on uh, some more about uh, uh, some air, saying he was an aircraft mechanic by trade, and has mentioned about aircraft wiring that we talked about on the podcast. Yes, all the same white. color, right? They're all white. And he says. While this is sort of true, what you're actually seeing is the outer insulation of the cable. Typically, most harnesses will be grouped with cables that carry two to three conducting wires, which will have an inner colored insulation that is color-coded per whatever the manufacturing specifies in the application. And if you were to build, repair, replace a harness, you have to properly label each individual cable as specified in the manual so that it is to OEM spec. That's awesome. Like on like on bikes and automotive industry, aircraft, of course, use a CAN bus style of system, but unlike them, redundancy is a requirement. Yes. For example, if you have an ECU on a motorcycle, you only have one computer harness. However, on a commercial commercial aircraft engine, there will be an identical separate ECU with an identical separate set of electrical connectors stacked on top of the first ECU, giving a fully independent channel A and B. This redundancy allows to swap to the other channel in case of a failure in one. And then he finishes by saying, Emma, your knowledge and expertise is unparalleled. And I always look forward to learning any information you offer up. My sister recently moved to Livermore, so we'll be making a trip out to California in the near future. Oh, good I am planning to visit the Recycle Garage in Santa Cruz and your moto shop and the museum, whatever that will be. Thanks, Alex McGuffin. Hey, thanks, well, Alex. The, you know, there's Alex has got a lot going for him. Number one, he paid me a great compliment. Thank you, Alex. Number two, he likes stretch boosters. <laughs> and number three, he likes cats. So, oh, yeah. winner. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. So, um, Mark came by, formerly of uh, uh, um, Law Tigers, rawr, uh-huh. and now of... What's the name of the company now? Breaking Away Adventures. Breaking Away. Yeah, Matt. Matt. Not Mark. Forgive me. Disgraceful. Matt does not like cats. (gasps) Oh, no. Well, thank you for throwing him under the bus. Well, no. I mean, you know, it's a statement of fact. I'm sorry, Matt. But you, you you simply can't make a statement like that to Emma and expect me not to say something about it. So, Matt, now come along now. That's okay. That, the that just means there's more cats for the rest of us. Well, okay then. <laughs> right. But actually, I love Matt. He's, he's, it was so good to see him. And Breaking Away Motorcycle Adventures, um, which is a shameless plug, appears, you know, he's, he's got some interesting things going on. So, uh, good on you, Matt. All right, Emma, since you're on a tear, do you have an email there to read? I do, and it is actually called, and it's all Emma's fault. (laughs) So, um, I'll just read it out. Greetings, peeps. Long-time listener, first-time caller, tra-la-la. I've been trying to decide how and when to get back into motorcycles for a couple of years, and I started out thinking I was definitely getting a Japanese bike, or maybe a BMW, 
because I had to sell my E28 M5 to pay for one. That's a motor car, you know. And I love the heck out of that car, so I'd probably like a Beamer too. That's not entirely true, darling, but <laughs> nevertheless. Anyway, I had decided no American, British, or Indian companies would be considered. Then Emma kept talking about Triumph and then talked about fit and finish and how great they are and going on and on. So then I got onto the Triumph website. Then I started looking at the local ones and then the not so local ones for sale. And I found two new old stock ones at deep discount in the town over me, uh, over from me at the Triumph dealership. Um, a 2019 Bonneville T100 and a 2019 Street Triple R, the pirate version. Um, I sat on both and the Bonneville was more comfortable in the showroom. Well, no surprises there, darling. Fast forward two days and I'm riding the Bonnie and I loved it. What an amazing bike. It just needs a sixth gear. And that is true. They are a little undergeared. Um, afterwards, I rode the Triple and I was shown everything that was missing from the Bonneville. The Triple just sings. It's a better bike than I am a rider having left two wheels back in 1996. Oh, it's just down the road. Um, I'll grow into it. Yes, you will. So I'm the proud owner of a new 2019 Street Triple R. Thanks, Emma. My only question is now, do I have to crook my finger when I hold my teacup? <laughs> yes, you do. And I'll tell you something else, James. If you've got any pictures of your wife, girlfriend, or boyfriend in your wallet, you had better take them out, tear them up, and replace them with a picture of the Queen. Preferably <laughs> a picture of the Queen immediately post-coronation. So you'll need a nice picture of the Queen taken in about 1953 or 54. Um, no good choice. And he finishes it up. Cheers from Nixa. No, I'm not Jason Bourne. Missouri. So <laughs> thank you for a great email and um, enjoy the heck out of that street triple. They are a wonderful bike. And the R version has got all the goodies on it. So it's got the Brembo's and the uh, Olin suspension. And it's just it's just a bloody brilliant bike. They that really that are. That bike, I feel like it's missing something. It bothers the hell out of me. What's that? Every time I see that bike, I feel like it's missing something. And it bothers the hell out of me. What, the street triple? Yeah, I hate that bike. I'm sure it runs good and it performs good, but just the look no, of No, the it, only thing it's missing is you, darling. No, it's missing like the whole front end. Like, where's the rest yeah, of the shit? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Oh, me, stop it. Airings? Like, yeah, it's fine the way it is. Yeah. Like, it's like two, or like really. Yeah, it's, it's the bug eyes. And it just, it's not a good look. Like, there's other bikes with just like two. Yeah, oh, blah, 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 blah. Honestly, <laughs> just. When people roll up on that, I could see how fucking proud they are. And I just look at it and, and leave my wife knows. She's like, oh, it's a Triumph Triple, huh? <laughs> I was like, oh, that bike's so stupid looking. Like, I didn't want to look at it because I'm like, dude, finish the bike, man. Just finish it. Oh, my God. Oh, damn. Says the, says the chopper guy. <laughs> says the chopper Cut guy. Cut it off. Whose best no, running I'm bike right up- now is a shovel head. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm I'm very upset with you now, Michael. Oh, jeez. I now really am. It. it was Matt. Now it's Mike. <laughs> yeah, it's Matt with his cat hating. And now it's Mike with his triple hating. The triple that Charlie had was awesome looking because it was fully fared. And like I've always said, to me, a sport bike is like, a, it's like an exotic kind of a thing. You know what I mean? It's like you're stepping into an exotic 
vehicle world. Yeah, but it's not an exotic, darling. It's a street fighter. It looks like a fucking Lopez. You know what? I wouldn't buy a Ferrari that's missing the fucking bumper in the front hood. You know what I mean? It depends on how much it was. Where do you put the winch? You know what? You know what? You know what Triumph needs? They need Eric Buell to design it for them. No, they need me to fucking design it. You're the wrong nationality, darling. Puerto Rican? No, you're the wrong nationality. You're entirely too American. I'm Puerto Rican, baby. All right, you guys. All right. So um, as I said earlier on, uh, Recycle Garage is closed for the next few weeks, which means more time to ride. And I'm hoping, uh, Jim, Mike, I think you're in on it, maybe uh, a couple others. Um, uh, we're talking about maybe trying to do an iron butt uh, coming up. And so everyone can get oh, some really? certificates. Yeah. Yeah. You you wouldn't want to do an iron butt, would you, Emma? I'm sure it, it would destroy your, your back, though, I would think. Yeah. I would And I mean, I insist. I insist on tooling around on that sport touring bike. Yeah. Um, uh, let, me, yeah. let me know if you need any uh, advice or, or, or uh, assistance. Thank you. Anything. So, yeah, we're, I think we're going to try and come up with some cool stuff to do. I thought Iron Butt would be a good challenge. Um, I thought just I thought going to ride for pie was a good idea. Yes. Yeah, Jim and I rode for pie yesterday. Live to ride, ride to eat. That is the motto. To well, now, hang on a minute. You need to invite more people oh. into that. But I tell you what. No, we're I in hot water, Liza. I know. Yeah. I was out riding with McCarthy yesterday. Well, now, hold on quite... a minute. What? You didn't let us know. You're as bad as Mike. Yeah. yeah. And it was actually quite chilly. We were we were around the Moss Landing and um, <laughs> Castroville area. And it was quite chilly. So, actually, I'm, I'm just going to say everyone has a pass during COVID because having one riding partner is all you need. That's the safe way to travel. And, and, and so... Everyone gets a pass. But, right. um, yeah, we'll see what we have coming up. But for now, you guys have to stay tuned for our big guest next week. Um, I hope everyone really enjoyed this this interview with Eric Buell. What, uh, I mean, he's an American institution and a nice guy, too. Yeah. And, 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 and you know what? I'm going to say I felt like he was one of us. He's a real misfit, too. Right? A Just a lot misfit. smarter. <laughs> exactly yeah well cool thank you um i think it's time to get out of here uh oh my gosh we've really gone a long time uh thank right. you to all our listeners thank to thank you to our uh patreon thank you you know just thank you everyone just thank you you know we appreciate it this is tis the season of thanks isn't it um I hope you enjoyed this. We got more coming for you. And I think on that note, I'm ready to get out of here. So, Micah, just so you know, we do this in alphabetical order now. Are you ready okay. for this? Okay, everyone got it figured oh, out? Hang on, hang on. Let me, let me think. She's, Emma's got to work it out. First, Emma has name. to work it out. It starts with me and then it goes to alphabetical. So here we go. Thanks, everyone. This is Liza. Bagel. Charlie. Emma Darling. Rick, Mike, Micah, Jim, Okay, not out of the I don't know how you left Jim. How did you mess that up? We're awkward. No, I just wait till everybody else is done. All right, I think safe bet. I think that's a wrap. Thanks, everyone. We are out of here. Cool. Cool. Cool.